Hello, I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Jim Goodrow. Jim is a 71-year-old retired vascular surgeon, Air Force brat, and grieving father. I met Jim as a coach for my medical school program, Select, and I've been itching to sit down with him to dig through his rich and profound life experiences. During this conversation, we discuss his time as a naval surgeon covering a huge swath of patients, his two strokes, and the immense losses of his two sons. Before we talk more about Jim and this really lovely conversation that we have together, I want to talk about my long-form Sundays posts. These are my weekly reflections of medical school from the very first anatomy lab to now uh, starting to think about applying for medical, uh, for not medical school, for residency programs and as a psychiatrist. And on, and you can find these all at mnmwod.com. That's mobility and mindfulness work of the day, mnmwod.com. And you can also type in eugenehkim and it'll redirect you there. So eugenehkim. And uh, you can on. Blah, Sorry, on August 12th, 2018, I published On a Good Week. This week, I reflected on my first week back into the clinic, the inpatient adult psychiatric floor. I'm surprised by how much I am enjoying myself. A few, I review a few reasons why this might be and decide to enjoy myself regardless of the reason. Then a week prior, I published On the Second Trimester or Baby Chronicles Part 2. This week, I reflected on the second trimester of my son's gestation. From the final days of third year, through a board exam and the start of fourth year, the morning sickness has abated and the baby bump has grown. Now baby just needs to bake for a little bit longer. And you can find these all, again, at eugenehkim or mnmbot.com, whichever is easier for you to remember, as well as finding the collected paperback published editions uh, at Amazon and you can search for those at just by search typing in physician education in Amazon it's pretty pretty nice that way so back to Jim Jim is an Air Force brat Roman Catholic a physician a husband a father a grandfather and a coach before Jim dies he wants to see his seniors and juniors graduate and be a part of their lives to enjoy his grandchildren, to somehow solve the problem of his disabled brother and disabled sister in Chicago, to take on another class, to see the world come to a sense of peace, to lose some weight, to get back to playing golf, and to walk in the out of darkness walk. When Jim dies, he wants to not be a burden to anybody in the closing moments of his life, to go out quietly, maybe not wake up tomorrow with his Kindle by the bedside, to be remembered as somebody who tried to do the right thing, to not die in the hospital, and to write a letter to the medical students that will dissect him. After Jim dies, he wants his children and their children to live in a world where they can prosper. And in conclusion, Jim says, there's a quote, and I'm going to say it wrong, and it comes in three parts. Whatever happens before, whatever happened before, you can't change it. You can learn from it, but don't wallow in it. Get over it. It's done. Whatever we're doing today, do the best you can do. Think it through. That's the big thing. Just think it through and try to do the right thing. And of course, we can argue about that. And the other is, don't be afraid of tomorrow. It's coming, but prepare yourself. So this was a really uh, profound conversation with Jim Goodrow. He's a, he's a, a great fellow. Um, he always has, he's, you, you can tell in the way he tells the stories that he, um, 
he is a natural born storyteller he loves talking he he can take up a whole room with his presence in that way and it's really really lovely to see him just just go and um to that end, we start this conversation uh, sort of at his intern year, uh, starting his re medical residency in, in surgery, and then we continue from there. Uh, and I, but we started the uh, I did I had the intro questions, of course, and uh, I started that, and then he he started going off about his 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 dad and his, his time in the his father's time in the Air Force and his time as an Air Force brat, and basically for like an hour and a half he goes like nonstop from like birth to um, about to enter medical. School. It's like, hey, let's pause here and now let's actually start the interview because I think this is where we'll dig into some real stuff here. Um, so I'm going to append all of that, uh, the the birth to met, to entering medical school or uh, finishing medical school. I'm going to put all of that at the very end of the conversation. If you want to really hear how how Jim got to that point. It's really, really amazing. Uh, there's a quote from a, a recent movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, where they talk about a character as like a jukebox. You put a dime in and he kind of goes. And that's kind of Jim Goodrow. He, uh, I, I, give him, I put a microphone in front of him. I, give him, I ask him a simple prompt and he just runs 20 miles with it and it's amazing to hear because he really you can hear he has these stories in him and he could he probably has so many more other stories that i that he could tell but uh as but we, since we we're focusing on on his overall life and especially his death um it, it allowed us to focus it in and there are some really quick points that i want to uh point out like uh he, like the his time as a vascular surgeon in the navy he covered such so many humans uh and so some very important ones in the government it's just very fascinating to think of him as the the dude that covered so much of of uh like the eastern seaboard europe it's it's fascinating and um him when he starts talking about uh, one of the patients that he died under his care with appendicitis, and he knew he still knows the patient's name. I think that was really really uh, tells you something. Um, and then we also of course cover the death of of Sean and Kevin, two of his sons, and uh, they are. I am so um, impressed by his vulnerability and the way that he doesn't try to hide his mistakes in. Um, and in, in some in his shame in in the way that he acted in, in some of in leading up to those deaths it's it's i think a very profound and powerful thing because you know he tells the stories about like young jim goodrow dude in the navy kind of doing his thing whatever um and you get a sense of like jim in his 30s is a profoundly different jim than jim now having lived a long life in his 70s um retired and teaching coaching medical students again it's just a really you you see a journey and there's a I think there's um, a sense of redemption and a sense of closure that I think is really beautiful in his story with Kevin and I think that you will re I think get re all I'm saying really is get ready to cry because it is a very he is it's a very powerful story and he's a perf very powerful storyteller uh, so you know. If you're listening to this in a public place, just be ready to be the person that's crying. And <laughs> that's all I'm saying. And um, I just think it's really beautiful how uh, he hits this low with uh, as a result of the death of his son. And then he quits medicine as a result of it. And then he he finds his love for medicine again, finds his love for being a physician again by coaching and that's how i know him as as a coach for the medical school program uh he's a longitudinal coach so he coaches a person through all four years of medical school and he's involved in their lives and he, he isn't my coach but he's he's a coach for other other fellow students 
and I can see how much it really it really fires him up. And I'm I, I, I'm glad that I get to see him at this point uh, when he's like reinvigorated and and he's able to give so much so much of his knowledge back. Um, I think you'll really find some value in it. And I hope you do because it's a really lovely conversation that we have. So, um, that, he he says. Uh, at one point that he uh if he was a salesman he could probably sell ice chests to eskimos and you can you can hear really early on just in the way that he talks he's he's a beautiful beautiful storyteller and this is a real uh beautiful conversation so i hope that you don't mind me talking too much i hope that you're ready to hear jim talk a lot and uh really dig into some really beautiful beautiful stuff um over this conversation so get your coffee ready get your water ready get ready for a walk whatever you're going to do i enjoy this really great conversation with jim goodrow on death It is July 29th, 2018. I'm sitting here in McCungy, Pennsylvania at uh, uh, Jim Goodrow's house, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Jim, what are the four prompts? Uh, they are, I am, who, who am I? Mm -hmm. uh, before I die, what do I want? Mm -hmm. When I die, what do I want? And after I die, what do I want? Excellent. Uh, so how do you finish that first prompt, I am? Um... I'm an Air Force brat, I'm a Roman Catholic, I'm a physician, mm -hmm. uh, and I actually should have said I'm a husband first, a father second, a grandfather third, a uh, physician fourth, uh, and I am a coach. Coach? I'm a coach. Um, and um, I love to learn. I always, and my, pro, my, my mantra is always tried to be do the right thing but gotcha I'm, a, I'm human so we got a lot to unpack and we talked a little bit uh in the in the warm-up stuff about your about your military brat life right like leading up to that and then uh we stopped right at the cusp of uh of intern year and uh residency um uh, and really what what it means to like what what it means to you to be a physician and uh we didn't talk really we talked a little bit about Susie and the starting of, of your relationship and uh and but not really about your fam about like family life either right. so uh we can kind of dive into a bunch of areas where do you want to go first a lot of what my early life is related to is to the residency internship mm -hmm. and residency and my family life um Internship, I started on a surgical rotation mm -hmm. uh, to do medicine second. Met one of my best friends, Frank Thomas, who was a Naval Agra Academy graduate, who made the decision to become a first-year resident right off the bat as opposed to staying in his internship. Mm -hmm. And that happened because of a unique situation with somebody. So I, the very first time in my surgery residency, I met Don Sturz, who became probably one of the most important figures in my life fighter pilot six foot two pious memorized start uh, memorized schwartz but taught me the importance of value-based patient-centered care mm -hmm. he really take care of everybody like you take care of yourself that was his rule and he never said it but he practiced it and the most amazing thing was that i applied for the one I was one of 54 who applied for the slot in general surgery, and I got it. And the reason I got it was because Frank Thomas made the decision to, they took him and moved him up a year because he oh. would have gotten it in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. But 
as I as I often say, God works in mysterious <laughs> ways. And I had uh, so I started my residency, uh, and that the first day of my residency, I was called to the chief of surgery's office. I mean, the internship was fantastic, a great experience. And then I got called to the chief of surgery's office to meet uh, Dr. William G. Uh, Bill uh, is gone now. I walked in, and Dr. Uh, Foudy, I think, was the chief at the time. He said, uh, you know, Lieutenant Goodrie, I want to introduce you to Commander William G. This individual stood up, red hair, Six foot five, six foot six, about one percent body fat. His hand swallowed mine, and that's not. There are not many people who can swallow <laughs> my hand, and I wound up working for him on and off for, in the four years for two years. And other than my father and Doctor Sturtz, he was the single most important person in my life. Other than you know, from a male mentor, because I ultimately chose to be a vascular surgeon because of him, mm-hmm. and that led to. Four incredible years. As far as the training and residency was concerned, it was great. I had great adventures, great people. Military is very family-oriented. We were all supportive of one another, band of brothers kinds of things. Um, I had my first child. Um, Jimmy was born. Uh, and I remember how stupid I was. Uh, Susie comes in and tells me, I'm on CT surgery. And I said, well, how did that happen? <laughs> Real sensitive guy. <laughs> Real sensitive guy. And I remember going and I was in surgery when he was born. Was born. Oh, wow. I went sprinting up there just in time for him to be born. And I looked at him and I knew he was, he was, he could only be Jim, James. Uh, and then, uh, again, time passes and we had my, do- my only daughter, Erin, who's an incredible person. Um, and but I, I never really figured out the importance of family at that time because I was going to be a surgeon. I was training. I was. Mm-hmm. And what time? What what years were these? Uh, internship seventy two to seventy three. Residency seventy three to seventy seven. Okay. So and um, busy, busy, busy. Aaron is born, and all of a sudden. Things weren't so good because Erin is born and she has congenital heart disease, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to do I wanted to do pediatric heart surgery, or you know, and my daughter's born and back then we don't have um, we don't have ultrasound we don't have we had none oh, of these things man. so and I had done I'd scrubbed for two months on at Children's on tetralogies of flow VSDs ASDs. And I was terrified. And at the same time, I was working. So my wife is the one that's at home taking care of the kids. And she would bring, she'd bring Aaron in, you know, saying she turned black. She'd show him the emergency room. Everybody would show up, and the kid would be fine. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, just, you know, Susie. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still don't really know where I'm going. And then one time she shows up black. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they wind up, and and the thing that happened then was, she got septic. She had pneumococcus in her blood, mm-hmm. and she closed her PDA, because what she had was a PDA and an ASD. The PDA had not closed, and the ASD was still open, so she functionally looked like a tet. So 
she winds up getting cast. She has an ASD. But for a month, I had told every resident in the hospital, if you do a cut down on my daughter, I will kill you. I mean, because we didn't have central lines for kids and things like that. And so we survived that. Um, Bill G. got me my residency, my fellowship in Chicago. We went to Chicago and had a great year in Chicago. It was the first time I'd ever been able to be with my parents for an extended period of time after. Mm -hmm. And um, came back to the military, had Colin, um, and I was busy, busy, busy. And then the Navy said, son, we have something for you to do. So the first thing I did was I went to see on, a, on the USS John F. Kennedy. Uh, what an adventure. I had just made commander, so I was a lieutenant colonel mm -hmm. commander. Got sent to sea, had no idea what I was supposed to do. Nobody had trained us in any of this stuff. Vietnam War was over, thank goodness. Um, and they had cut the surgery. The surgeons had fled the Navy. There were 80 of us left. So we were doing lots of jobs. I was the only vascular surgeon on the East Coast outside of Portsmouth. So I covered Europe, the United States to the Mississippi. <laughs> the guy at Portsmouth was so busy, he only took care of Portsmouth. And I also took care of the White House, the Senate, the Congress, and the Supreme Court. So, man, talk about busy, busy, busy. Um, saw some incredible people, took care of Bill, uh, I can't mention names, took care of the Secretary <laughs> of the Treasury, took care of lots of congressmen, senators, uh, took care of Supreme Court justices, and, uh, you know, it was a pretty daunting experience because I was pretty young, mm -hmm. you know, a little, I, I don't think I'd, yeah, I'd made 30 by then, but, um, and then I got sent to sea, um, Colin arrived, my son, and my experience at sea was, being on an aircraft carrier is an incredible experience, I had to learn my way around the ship, and... But one of the most interesting things, uh, there was lots of things that happened, but I go down to medical the first day, and I walk in, and there's two Marines with guns, uh, firearms. And I'm, what the hell is this? I walk out, and there's three guys sitting there. I walk in, and I've got the silver oak leaf. I'm, mm. a, I'm the, like the fifth-ranking officer on the ship out of 5,500 men. Now, in the real Navy, at Bethesda, I was good enough to wash the floors <laughs> at, with that rank. But on a ship... So I walk in, and these three guys jump up, and they say, and I said, what? And they said it again. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't understand. And one of the Marines said, sir, they're saying, pardon my presence. And I'm like, well, why would they be saying that? These were prisoners in the, from the brig. Oh. Because the Marines on the ship do two things. They guard the nuclear weapons, and I thought, we have nuclear weapons on the ship. <laughs> and then the other was... They, they run the brig. So I, I had this great adventure. I was showing the kid. The, the corpsmen were doing a lot of surgical care, which they shouldn't have been doing. So I had a, it was great teaching. I showed um, there's a six-foot-five African-American kid who had size 15 feet. They put him into a size 12 boot. Mm. The, all these poor kids had paronychia. I walk in, and I'm watching them try to they're, – they're sticking the needle with the pu into the pus – trying to shoot the local anesthesia. He's screaming and yelling and hollering, throwing people around because he's huge. I walk in and I said, Can I, give, let me give you a shot here. So uh, I relaxed the kid a little bit. I did an ankle block, took off the, you know, cleaned it all up, got it all done. Came back the next day for a dressing change. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
and I wanted to do it like about 100 because the, all, everybody started showing up because they knew that there was this guy who wouldn't hurt him. <laughs> and things were rolling along. I was doing fine. We were flight operations. We had we stopped in Boston. I got to meet uh, John John and uh, Caroline Kennedy because they were on the ship because it was their dad's namesake. And um, then Lonnie showed up. Lonnie was from the brig. Lonnie had abdominal pain, and it was getting worse. And I could do a CBC, a urine, and a plain x-ray. I had nothing else. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And so I, not thinking that I should have just said to the commanding officer, you need to get this kid off the ship. Steam toward a point where you can we can get him on a, a plane and fire him into Roosevelt Roads. But instead, because nobody had ever told me what to do, and I wasn't intuitive enough to figure it out, I operate on the kid. And I wound up doing an appendectomy. I explore him. I, I, I just find this peritoneal fluid, but nothing else. Close him up. I'm under the impression that everybody knows what they're doing. I watch the kid for about an hour. I go down and go to sleep. A couple hours later, there's this knock on the door. Doot, 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 doot. Come quick. Something's wrong with Lonnie. I go up. Lonnie's dead. Mm-hmm. Lonnie has aspirated. And the kid at the bedside hadn't really thought it was a big deal. to, And so I'm trying to resuscitate this kid, and he's dead. And it's like, you know, duh. This poor kid is dead. Why? Who? How? When? And where? And... I have to, you know, the commanding officer comes down, I get, you know, I have to write a report and all this stuff. And then the chief of the boat comes and says, uh, Commander Goodrow, you uh, need to know that the brothers think that you killed Lonnie for the Marines. So you got to be really careful. I'm like, what? Because there have been situations where doctors have been thrown over the side of the ship because of the drug trade on the ships. Drug trade on the ships? Mm -hmm. Drug trade on the ships. So anyway, a couple days go by, and... This young African-American kid shows up. He's got appendicitis. I operate on him. And the word goes out, Goodrow's okay. <laughs> Thank God. That was a great experience. Get home. Um, life's going along. And then I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to get out of the Navy. And then I got deployed with the 26th Marine Amphibious Unit out of Lejeune. Mm-hmm. Talk about a world's different experience. Submarine Navy. Air Navy. Gator Navy. <laughs> okay. Um, I was on the USS Guadalcanal. Um, the ship is driven by the Navy. The berthing is done by the Marines. There are 5,000, there's 5,000 people. We had like 3,000 Marines and 2,000 sailors. And I, basically when I, <clears throat> the summer was unbelievable. We wound up getting into Spain then we were going to go to Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. Somebody started shooting up the embassy in Lebanon. We shot down a, uh, a Libyan jet that was harassing somebody. And so we wound up in the med the whole summer. It was, from the standpoint, if I'd been single, it'd been great. You know, I got a, a French food, Italian food. Uh, but on the other hand, we were not doing anything. And I kept saying to the commanding officer, we need to get out of here. Um, he and I did not get along. He was six foot seven, and he wound up actually physically assaulting me in front of a bunch of people, grabbing me by the throat. And he had this message in his hand. He was waving it at me. And it said, from commanding officer USS Ponce to commanding officer Guadalcanal, I want to have you and Commander Goodrow come over because we really appreciated Dr. Commander Goodrow coming over 
and spending the four days with us straightening out the medical bay, solving all these problems and everything else. We're really, really, really appreciative. And he was angry about that. And so um, in the end, uh, that night he makes me go to dinner with him and another, I had a, one of my buddies was with me and then we go in, he's drinking, he's driving, and he takes us to a hooker's bar and he's flirting with a bunch of hookers while the Marines are trying to pay for their services, it was a very uncomfortable evening. And that, from that point on, he, he was after me. And uh, he was not going to let me. I, had, I was in command of 26 guys, uh, anesthesia, OB, uh, orthopedics, um, a couple of nurses, a bunch of... And uh, he said, uh, uh, I'm not going to let you guys off the ship. I said, I got a set of orders here from the commanding officer of the Atlantic Fleet. He said, I'll, I'll let you off the ship in a month. I gave it, I had a guy who had, was an administrative officer, had been in Vietnam. I gave him the orders, and he, he came running back and said, We're flying out tomorrow. I gave it to the command. He was not happy. <laughs> my, my last fitness report from the Navy, which had been uh, 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 early command, early, early, early recommendation, early promotion, early promotion, early promotion. My last recommendation was I was a discredited United States Navy Medical Corps. <laughs> and in the famous words of Frank Thomas, sir, the only way you can hurt me with this is if you roll it up very tightly and poke me in the eye with it. <laughs> Although it was... And I showed up here, and uh, I went to work for uh, Ken McDonald and Harry Kaup. We had a wonderful experience. Uh, summer comes. Harry and I go to Boston... Harry has an embolic stroke um, because he wasn't taking his Coumadin. Uh, I find him down in his room. Um, we come back. I work my ass off all summer. Ken McDonald, has, Harry comes back. He's missing. His left arm doesn't work. Mm. He's a surgeon whose left arm doesn't work. And I'm desperately trying to keep him out of the operating room. And McDonald goes away on vacation and gets hit by a car down in the Dominic, uh, down in uh, Jamaica. So I run the practice for two months by myself, n- night call every night, all the surgeries, no time off. And uh, basically when it comes time, the guy says, okay, here's your contract for next year. And I said, well, you know, I think I've kind of deserved, you know, here's my thoughts. Well, you don't tell that to somebody who's, who's got amygdala release and the next thing I knew uh, they'd hired somebody else and two years and six months into the practice I got fired Uh, I got a letter I mean I'm I'm working I can't find anybody and the elevator door opens and there he's standing with the other two guys who run like cockroaches and he takes me into the room hands me a letter and I've been fired and it's like "Hmm, that's interesting so I'm walking down the hall holding this letter and this guy goes by me and said, hey, Goodrow, what's up? I said, I just got fired. And Les Rosen's exact quote was, the hardest working doctor in the hospital just got fired. And I handed him the letter. I, I, it was just, here, read it. And the be- you know, and God protects the innocent and the stupid. I think mostly in my case, stupid. And within an hour, I got probably 15 calls don't leave town because this hospital if he, if he if he had fired me at 23 months I'd have had to leave because he owned my spot 
but because I was there more than two years, it was my spot. So I went in to see the chief of surgery, and he said, you're, you're golden. So for the next five years, I was in solo practice. And let me tell you something. I forgot about my family, something I regret to this day, because she worked her ass off taking care of the family, and all I did was work. I was putting in 100-hour work weeks. And how old were you? I was, it happened in, let's see, uh, I got here in 81, so it happened in 83, because Sean, let me just check, mm-hmm. do the math. Oh, I must have turned the phone off. Oh, it died. Anyway, <laughs> 85, so I got fired in, 80, in, uh, in uh, like January, February, 85. And so I was 85. I would have been 35, 1947, 38. Mm-hmm. Right? And oldest, oldest James was how old was he? Jimmy would have been at that time 70, 74. So he would have been around 10, 11. Okay, okay. Aaron would have been 8. Colin would have been. And Kevin, my fourth child, had been born... A year after I got here, 82. So, uh, no money, you know. Um, got a loan from the bank. They had fired the office man, the, the the office manager at Christmas. He fired her when she just had surgery on her back and had a foot drop. And when I when I called her, she said, "I've been waiting for this call. Everybody knew you were going to get fired except you." <laughs> And, man, the next five years did I work my ass off. And it all worked out, you know, except for kind of losing touch with the family mm-hmm. um, because I was working all the time, which I, I don't know what I would have done different. I often look at that time. I could have left town, but there was really no other choice if I stayed in town because I was pissed that they fired me. I was, I was going to show them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was going to show them I could survive. And uh, I don't know what I could have done differently, but... In the end, um, the funny thing was, not him, but I re- joined up with Ken McDonald, mm-hmm. who was who had hired Jim McCullough. You know Jim McCullough. Yeah. Who I when he hired McCullough, I said I would I want to work with that guy because that guy and I have a lot in common. And so over the next twenty years, I worked with them. Um, in '85, Sean was born and died the same day. Uh, uh, was, you know, you're you're working, your wife is pregnant, you're not paying much attention, um, and I finally get a phone call, and she knew there was something wrong, and I get a phone call from Bruce McNitt, he says, there's something wrong with the kid, we think maybe he's got a gas, um, uh, not gastroschisis, what's it, um, umbilical hernia or something, mm-hmm. and uh, I was so so busy, I didn't take the time to start reading, which I should have done. We wound up going down to Penn, so they did, um, you know, um, genetic testing, but it wasn't available. And then at eight months, she went into labor. And when the kid was born, I thought I saw I was in the suite. I, I realized, oh, this, this isn't just a hernia. This was trisomy fourteen. So. Um, You know, Susie had a C-section. So, asshole that I am, I looked at this. I talked to Susie. 
I went to talk to Bill G, and that's when I got the phone call that it confirmed the kid was trisomy 14, Creed shot, I think is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I knew the kid was not going to survive. So I went back to the hospital, told him to stop care. And I was such a chicken. I, I couldn't sit in the unit with him. Uh, so I went to my office, sat, they called me, I went back over, and, uh, but I had completely, talk about being almost inhuman, I had left her out of the loop. Um, she had seen the kid once, but she was still, you know, and then I had the funeral, and she was still, still in the hospital. And, uh, talk about regretting, uh, but, so, um, you know, that was, that was an interesting learning experience, and that, I think I woke up then and said, man, I gotta pay more attention, I have a spectacular wife, got great kids, and kind of, I think swimming, Susie had always been in swimming, swimming got us back together in the sense of, I began to pay some more attention uh, started going to swim meets, started participating in their activities, and, you know, kind of got involved, still not as involved as I should have been, but more involved in their lives. Um, and then um, we were rolling along, and then my son, Colin, was a really good swimmer. I mean, Jimmy is a good swimmer. He goes off to all uh, Mercersburg Academy because he enjoyed high school way too much. Wound up going to Albright. Colin, Aaron goes to Pitt. Aaron, you can go to Pitt, you can go to Tulane, you can go to Emory. If you go to Emory or Tulane, uh, I'll pay the tuition. If you go to Pitt and you do good, good grades, I'll buy you a car after your first year. You know how that, you know mm-hmm. how that went. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were doing fine. And Kevin, our youngest, um, he, uh, great kid, fantastic athlete, guitarist, piano player, everything. And he, there were some friends of his that I actually took on vacation with us down to Williamsburg, Nate, Nate Lazansky. And then he met this, this girl, Hannah. And then, it, the, I mean, the worst thing that could ever happen, he started, he, they took him away from us. The mother was a principal but she allowed my son to live in her home, live in her daughter's room, gave him money, let him use a car. We lost complete, there was nothing you could do. I mean, my wife would go to school, drop him off, and wait, and then watch him sneak out of school with this girl. She was, it was really a very difficult time. And we had the parents sitting in that back porch right there, we talked to them. They both they were both British. They had oh they'd left home when they were fifteen and sixteen and oh Eric, Kevin and, and Hannah are just like we were running away and living together and it was gonna be this wonderful thing. This little girl, talk about mind control. If we had we could get him over for Christmas, he was only allowed to stay an hour. Thanksgiving he could stay an hour. So she takes him, they moved to Arizona, we helped him move, oh, what a disaster, we went out there and she'd let us be with him maybe a week on his own, but I mean, how can you control somebody when the, you know, you can't control money or, you know, 
I mean, she's she's got them with sex. So, and um, they wound up going to Pitt, or, or they came back Penn State, and we we were re outreach, outreach, outreach. But you know, she was very in control. And then all of a sudden, one day, I, I, we get a phone call. Um, we just would like to know, do you think your son's a suicide risk? And we said, what are you talking about? Well, uh, we're calling for a Center County prison. <laughs> that got our attention. <laughs> what we had found out was he had come home from work as a bouncer, and he walks in and he finds his girlfriend with another guy. Now, Kevin was, I don't know if he ever finished his black belt karate, but he was, uh, what a big kid, but he was fast. And so he wind up, he winds up in his bedroom, he slams the door, the girl comes over, she's beating on the door, and he opens the door and says, do you want me to kill you? Okay. And he's got some Japanese ceremonial swords. They call the cops on him. Mm Mm-hmm. And the next thing he knows, he's in a parking lot with a cop with a gun to his head. And he's in prison. You know, he's incarcerated. We're up there. I don't know any about this. And we're sitting in the courtroom. And my son comes out. You know, orange is the new black. You know, mm-hmm. like this with a bunch of guys. And we'd already talked to the DA. We heard this story. And we're like, what? So... He, we, uh, I mean, I remember going to the back door of the prison. He comes out, big hug, put him in the car. We get him home. And the judge had said, if you have any contact with this girl, uh, you're back in prison immediately. She kept calling. She kept calling him. His dad, the dad would call here. We finally, we snuck him off to Pittsburgh. He finished at Penn State. Talk about brutal. They put his name in the paper in Penn State, the Penn State paper, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah, I mean, we were so frightened and so scared. We have a judge who's a friend. Uh, and he gave us good advice, but we never thought about fighting the charge, which we probably should have done. But he winds up, we sent him, he gets his degree from Penn State. I have a real bone with Penn State. <laughs> I'm not a big Penn State fan. We sent him to a little school in Pittsburgh called Carlo College. He stays with my daughter, who's out there finishing her. She's in chemistry. She's going to nurse. She got her degree in chemistry. She's going to nursing school. All this is happening. Mm-hmm. And he winds up uh, becoming a cardiac perfusionist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, should have gone to medical school. but So he comes back. He winds up down at Torsdale in, in Philadelphia. But, you know, he's... Uh, so anyway, he... Um, Life's going on. I keep, you know, we're keeping in touch, trying to do what we can. He calls Susie one day, and she says, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling right. He, he's in a situation down where, there where there's significant bullying by the other cardiac perfusionists. Mm-hmm. And uh, as witnessed by a cardiac perfusionist who left, and I talked to him up here. And he says, oh, yeah, they're, they're bullying the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. So he winds up getting down there and they um, so he says maybe you ought to go see somebody so he goes to see the psychiatrist and I think I told you the story he gets put on a bilify lamictal winds up with tardive dyskinesia which doesn't go away mm-hmm. and then she doesn't answer the phone over a weekend 
So he abruptly stops. You know, the, the worst thing you can do with those meds is stop him. She puts him on uh, um, L. It's another one. Starts with an L. Not. Not Lumictal. Is not, it an antipsychotic? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember, but basically, he had, he had met a girl. We didn't know anything about her. Her name was Megan, Irish Catholic girl, and I guess their sex life was off the wall wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, they were really getting along. He was dating her, and all of a sudden, overnight, he is uh, impotent, and um, he becomes suicidal. I go down, pick him up, bring him. Spend the night with him in the ER at Muhlenberg. Mm-hmm. The Muhlenberg guys were fantastic in the ER, but the you know the system is broken because he has to sit in the ER for eight hours waiting for the medical social worker to show up because she's so overwhelmed with work. She finally gets to him and says, "Oh yeah, he needs to be admitted." Well, you know, I know that the ER guys know that. Why, you know, why you? So anyway, he winds up getting admitted, and I, man, I told everybody, I said, whoever sees him, I'd ask Ken Zamanik to see him, but Ken, unfortunately, had to go on, went on vacation that day. So I said to everybody, I said, I got to talk to whoever's going to see him, you know, before he sees him, and we walk in the next day, and I found out that Paul Gross had walked in the room, heard his story. Didn't examine him, didn't talk to him, said, I'm going to put you on these drugs. My son, Kevin, I I think I told you about the book, um, Unhinged, which is a condemnation of the psychiatry drug axis. This guy is a psychiatrist at Tufts. I've actually toyed with writing him about it. But anyway, so Kevin says, I'm not taking any more drugs. And And Paul Gross says to him, well, i got nothing to offer you, and leaves the room. Um... So I hear this, and I'm like, what? And we go, and we get to meet the nurse practitioner, blonde, cute little girl. He's not suicidal. We'll just keep him here for 72 hours and let him go. So, talking about pissed. So anyway, he gets out. We get him down to Philly, and we arrange for a psychologist. Good guy. And, you know, Kevin was on disability, 90 days of disability. And um, he's going to the psychologist, and all of a sudden we stopped hearing from him. And we were busy. There was a wedding. There was this. There was that. And he stopped. And unknown. And I kept, you know, one of those things where you say, "I'll call him." Oh, I forgot to call him. I'll call him. I forgot to call him. Unbeknownst to me, Susie was calling and not getting any responses. So. Um, we get a phone call from the psychologist and he says Kevin's not, uh, hadn't been in missed a couple and uh, I'm a little concerned uh, so, so I go to work on a Monday I do an aneurysm endovascular but great I'm out, talk to the family walk out Charlie comes by, and Charlie says, "You got to talk to Susie." I pick it up, call her. I'm in the uh, 
I'm in the the area where patients are being prepared for surgery, and I pick up the phone, and she's she's telling me something. What? I I couldn't understand what she kept saying. And I finally figured out that he was dead. I felt talk about a scene. Never would have thought I would have done that, but I. I think I cried like a wounded animal. It was, <laughs> I guess I created such a scene. They took me and put me in a separate room, and Chalani came over. I was crying, he was crying. And my other partner comes in and goes, hey, what the hell's going on here? And he said, Kevin's dead. So they took me home, and um, the rest is history. We, uh, you know, it's just... We called down. I called the police down there. And can you imagine being a policeman getting a phone call from the dad? He was very kind. Talked to, talked to people down there. They brought him back up. And I have a good acquaintance who uh, got him ready. We had a mass. Monsignor um, was actually supposed to have surgery. There were the line around the church just went on forever, and we buried him. Um, a lot of people came, a lot of people came. We buried him the next day, and then <clears throat> we went away for two weeks, and man, we struggled. And then I came back, and you know how you become a robot. You just say, okay, I got, you know, I got a job, I got to get it done. And I was, uh, I was trying to take care of patients the best I could, and I know I did. I was still, I was able to put that part over here, lock it away for the moment, and take mm -hmm. care of patients, do the job, not mechanically, still talk to the patients, talk to the families, get things done. And I was still working and working and working and working and working. And then we got a letter about six months after Kevin died. We got a letter from Paul Gross. The doctor who said, I got nothing to offer you. And in the letter, it, the letter's addressed to Kevin. Now, I've done, you know, I buried Kevin. I had to take care of all these legal things. So I get this letter from Paul Gross, and Paul Gross is inviting my son to come, come to his practice for ECT, not ECT, the magnetic... The MRI thing mm -hmm. now. Like Dean Brink? Yeah. Simulation. Yeah, whatever it is. He said, I'd be an ideal candidate. Well, of course. If I if I could have known where Paul was at that point, I would have driven over and shot him. Just... So I write a letter to the hospital. And I've been in leadership roles at the hospital. I wrote a letter to Swenford, who was the president at the time, who bounced it to Whalen, who bounced it to the head of psychiatry. And a couple weeks go by, and I get a letter back in which they said, and my point was, he was not my son's doctor. He never developed a relationship. He had no right to use his name because he got it from a role. You know, you know. hey, look at all the people I took care of at the hospital. And so the letter says, he was indeed, a, he had access to it. He was my son's doctor. And, oh, by the way, and they ended it with, and my son got excellent care. And when I got to that point, 
I said, I'm done with medicine. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I, so I'm walking down the hall. What year was this? Uh, 2011. Okay. 2011. I'm walking down the hall, and I'm still going to do my job. I had just told my partner, and the really awful thing was, two of our partners walked out of the practice. And we're sitting there, and they're talking about what they're going to do. And I'm going to say, I said to the guys, I said, you're not going to want to hear what i got to say here. I said, for all for reasons that I'm not willing to talk about now, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm tired. I can't do this anymore. i gotta, I got to go. You know, and it really came down to before I did something stupid. Well, they were not happy with me. Um... I'm walking down the hall, and I run into Waylon. He said, oh, yeah, Jim, I got that letter from, from Mike. What a great letter. I said, I was infuriated. He stops, and he looks at me. He said, well, we got to meet. And I thought, you know, why would I want to meet with you? You're not going to do anything about it. And so we made the decision. My practice did not want me to tell anybody I was leaving. I worked for them for six months seeing patients. And then we started traveling. And I really, I'd given it up. I was never going to do medicine again. And, um, you know, and the and our family, I mean, my kids. Whew. I still remember telling my mom. My mom was over here at a nursing facility, and she still had her faculty. I didn't tell her that Kevin was dead. And, oh, man. Every day for the next year, I went out to his gravesite. <laughs> when I think about what I was doing during the dead of winter, there'd be three feet of snow covered in ice, and I would tromp to the ice and just stand there at his gravesite asking the questions. So anyway, 2012 comes, and I, I, I bury myself in... We're going to go to Alaska, and I'm going to take my parents. Both my parents have died. Their remains are here. I'm going to take them back to Chicago, and I'm going to bury them in the family plot. I'm going to have a big party for them, you know, a, a celebration of life. We do all that. Celebration of life was fantastic. We had uh, over 100 people. We had pictures. We had It was such great tribute to their life. Went to Alaska. Had a, just an awesome time. Um and came back, and, you know, I mean, we were, you know, we were doing things as a family, but we were still, this thing was always there, and it's still always there. But, um, G- um, Mike C- um, Cush, and, and, Jesus, I'm blocking <laughs> I'm blocking his name. How embarrassing that is. That every year on the weekend of Palm Sunday, there's a retreat house in Philadelphia. And, um, and, excuse me. Let me look it up. Oh, my phone's dead. Oh, yeah. So anyway, he calls me up and says, look, we got to go down to this retreat. It's a religious retreat, three days. And I'm like... I'm still struggling with, I'm still angry at God. still believe in him, but I am pissed. I'm trying to understand why he took my son, so to speak. And just really struggling. I, but, so, 
we go down to this retreat, and the way they do the retreat, everybody has a small room. I mean, a bed, a desk, a lamp, a chair, common showers, and every room is, there's a saint on the door. Anyway, I go, and I open the window, and my wife has always, whenever she, the, the Pieta, you know what the Pieta is, right? The the Blessed Virgin holding Jesus Christ, okay. the, her mm-hmm. son who's dead. And she'd always said, you know, she wished she'd had one more conversation with him. So anyway, I look out. There's the Pieta. I'm thinking, hmm, okay. And the, 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 there's a lot of male, it's all male bonding, a lot of discussions in church and communion. And then there's this exercise where um, you go in the room with the, ho- the host, the, the, uh, the, U- the Eucharist. So I'm sitting, waiting for my turn to go in this room for an hour, and I look up, and the door is St. Kevin. <laughs> so I'm losing it. The door opens, this guy steps out sees that I'm upset, sits down, we talk, and he says, my name is Kevin. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. So I go in, I do my Eucharist thing. It, the, it comes to an end on a Sunday morning, afterwards noon. I go into the room, I open the drawer, which I, I would put some things in the drawer, clean it up, pack it, and I open up the drawer, and... Somebody has carved in the drawer. Kevin is here. <laughs> I think that Toby, whether you believe in the hereafter or not, I think I had enough signs that said to me, somebody told me he's okay. <laughs> All I wanted to know was he's at peace. So I walked out of there and I told the story to. Rick Cush going home and he said he's trying to tell you something so I came home and I got involved in the church pretty significantly started doing Eucharistic ministry at say at uh, one of the nursing homes and when I go sometimes when people go for give to the uh, people in the, in the nursing homes or to the assisted living they just kind of go in and deal it out like a host. I actually prepare a service, the epistle, the gospel, the prayers. We do a little singing, and I just love it because the these my mom and dad have been there, and I feel like I'm paying back a debt. So they're um, got involved in that. Then I started doing Eucharist at the, at, at the church. So got more and more involved. I was at the gym. I was a lot lighter than I am now. I was a gym rat. And one of my favorite people on the planet, Susie Templer, is at the gym. <laughs> and we're, shoot, we're shooting the shit, and I'd see her periodically. I, she, she remembers me because I had a temp of 104, and I was dripping uh, blood, and I was helping her put a central line in. So she was an intern. And she said, you were dying. You didn't yell once. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're sitting there talking, and she said, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, how are things going with Select? Because, you know, when I was a staff guy, it was in its, its infancy, and, you know, we didn't know much about it, and we didn't have much interaction with the students. And she said, blah, 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 and, you know, we just we need coaches. And I went, oh, I'll do that. 
because I had a vision of what a coach was supposed, a coach was going to do. Little did I know that I was going to go down prologue one, prologue two. That coaching was completely different than mentoring. I'm a surgeon. I'm a mentor, not a coach. And I still am a mentor, not as you know. And my strengths are 40 plus years of clinical experience. So I wind up in select, which really brought me back to a love of reading, teaching interacting with human beings because mm. to me then it was play golf I had a good crowd of guys play golf go to the gym Susie and I and but I you know but it brought me back uh, you know I mean being part of select brought me back and I've loved every minute of it I mean there's a lot of things in select that I wish they would change because they don't appreciate your time the amount of money that you pay, I think you should get a better deal than you're getting, but that's for another day. <laughs> um, and that brings us up to the present. Uh, that's where I am now. I'm uh, 71. It'll be 72 next year. I've already volunteered to take another class the following year, if, if, they, <laughs> if they keep you around. <laughs> if they keep me around. And I told them, I said, look, I'll be, you know, I'm talking 73 to 77, you know. Doesn't mean, you know. My brain still works. My body's starting to fail. And um, so that's where we are today. I mean, I, I, I met an incredible woman I, that she's put up with me for all these years. <laughs> I have a son who's uh, oldest son who's a teacher who loves education, and, he's, and he, is, he is so upset about the social situation in downtown Allentown. He emotes. He's got great kids that have no chance. I have a daughter in Texas who's got a, you know, and he gave me a grandson, Peyton, who's fantastic. I have a daughter in Texas. Um, they've been through hell. He went to, the husband went to Tikrit, came back with bad PTSD. Mm. He was an, an anesthetist there and saw some terrible, terrible things. She gave us three grandchildren that are spectacular. And my son, Colin, um, who didn't have a dime, he and his wife lived with us for two years because they didn't have any money, but they live in Emmaus, and he, we're about to have our, uh, our fifth grandchild, mm-hmm. and I now am a step-great-grandfather. Oh, congratulations. My son's oldest son, Jimmy, married a woman who'd lost her husband to suicide, so that's a common bond. Um, she had two children, one of which was a male who went to China to teach English, Brought a girl back, Cece, spectacular human being. She's pregnant, went to China, had the baby, came back. So the kid has dual citizenship. And so, yeah, I'm a step-great-grandfather, which is hysterical. And, um, you know, life is good. I, you know, I try to get to Mass a couple times a week, play golf with my friends, love to eat. Unfortunately, I'm the classic <laughs> metabolic syndrome. <laughs> and uh, I'm always going to start by dying on Monday. Yeah. And um, and that's about it. Other than being pre-diabetic, having gout, I left out the two strokes. Yeah, I forgot about that. Hmm. That's another day. <laughs> I had a pontine infarct. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I was really, yeah. Oh, geez, I have too many stories. You got a lot. Put people to sleep. Um, <laughs> Tell this one, and then we'll move we'll, on. And then we'll move on, we'll move on All a little right. bit. So basically... I go to the Mayo swim meet. I'm in pretty good shape, about 235. How old are you? I am 98, so I am 51. Okay. 
Okay. Forty-one. Fifty-one. And this so, is like you're in the you're in your in like those twenty years career. of career. Yeah. High gotcha. through the career. Gotcha. Just working my ass off, loving life, staying busy, taking care of my mom and dad, which was a whole another story. Mm-hmm. And um, be, because I was Ichiban, number one son, and we go to the, we go to the Mass High School, and Colin, my middle son, they have a spectacular swim meet. They break all kind of records. I invite the whole swim team and all the families over here. I order 25 pizzas from Italiano Delight. There's mm-hmm. soda, beer, everything. It's Friday night. I'm on backup call because I'm going to be on call on Saturday morning for the weekend. And I, I hardly ever drink. I'm sitting right there at that table. And somebody hands me a beer, and I took a sip. I put the beer down. And whatever this thing was, it physically hit me going left to right. I mean, bam, this thing goes off. And I went, what was that? And then I realized that the left side of my body wasn't working so good. Mm. And I and I and I noticed that I was very unsteady. So I don't say a word. I get up, I'm holding onto the table, I reach across, I grab the door jam, and I go upstairs and go to bed. <laughs> oh no. I I I'm leaning I'm oh leaning against the wall. I make it up to bed, I lay down, phone rings at six o'clock in the morning, and Jim McCullough calls me and says, oh, Jim, I was watching this guy all night. Uh, I didn't think I'd need to operate on him, but I better. So if you don't mind, you can operate on him. Okay. I get out of bed. Lights are off. I put my clothes on. I'm, I'm leaning against the wall going down the stairs. I make it out to the car. I'm having a hard time keeping the car straight. I make it into the hospital, get into the surgeon's lounge, change my stuff, and I keep leaning against the wall. I make it into the OR, and I'm leaning against the wall, and I'm completely, I mean, I know there's something wrong. But I can't figure it out. And in walks McCullough, and he says, hey, look, I'm really sorry. I, I, I screwed you. I'm going to go ahead and operate on this guy. And I said, oh, that's okay. So I, I make it out the door, and I call Ron Wasserman, the neurologist I call. And I say, Ron, i got somebody I need you to see. He's, uh, I think he's had a stroke or something. And he goes, oh, Jim, I'm really busy. I, got a lot. I said, Ron, it's me. <laughs> and I meet Ron down in the neuro lab and he says he's examining me and it's like okay finger to finger to nose and I'm like you know like this I can't you know and then it's heel to shin and my Romberg I can bear and he says well I think we better go get an MRI and I'm about six feet tall about 235 and he says well we you know and I said ah, I can walk over there he's walking through the parking lot going like if he goes down I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> so anyway I um yeah, they can, you know, MRI doesn't show anything, but I've got deficits. They, they put me in bed. They start me on heparin. And, uh, man, for three days, I thought, I'm cooked. I mean, everybody's in the room. You know, I can't get any sleep because everybody's in and out of the room. And on the fourth day, I woke up and I said, I'm better. I'm better. I, and I was able to get up and get moving. And within six weeks, I was complete. I, I had recovered from the event, but I had asthenia. I was tired. Mm-hmm. I was tired. But the answer was I was back. My first case when I got back was a ruptured aneurysm. That I, you know, I had McCullough stand over my shoulder, but I, I did it. And then I had my second one. In, and I got in a program called Lowering. It was an NIH study called Lowering Vascular Atherosclerotic Risk. And I got down to about 210. And I was doing a lot of fitness stuff. 
and I'm walking down the hall with John Castaldo, who was the chief of neuro- he was a neurologist here till mm-hmm. just recently, and I had my second event, and I, I <laughs> he and I were walking, I boom into the wall. And I had gone to the Mayo Clinic, and they had done every test unknown to God and man, never figured out what the problem was. So John basically goes, you know, oh, my God, you know. But within 24 hours, I'm better. And I had to, they finally did a hypercoagulability profile, and I have hyperhomocystinemia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I've been on, Folte- you know, Foltex, Flobic, or whatever it's called, ever since. I haven't had a bit of trouble. Of course, then I forgot all the lessons I learned. About you know metabolic syndrome. <laughs> so anyway, that's my story. Um, so we're so we've covered a lot. So yeah, we've covered a much. lot of uh, the fatherhood, uh, being a physician. We covered um, a lot of, of a lot of your religion, a, a lot of like that journey that you've taken when you were younger. You didn't really go to mass except for right before you were taking that cross cross uh, Pacific flight, and then uh, and then you you talk about the pond exactly. And so we've covered a lot, um, and I think that uh, now now I'm just interested about the future for you. So uh, how do you finish the next prompt before I die? I want. I would like to see my seniors graduate. I'd like to see my juniors graduate. I want to be part of their life, you know, um, continue to have be somewhat effective in their education, if I can be. Uh, I want to enjoy my grandchildren. Uh, uh, we're going to Colorado for my step-granddaughter's wedding. I'm really excited about that. Um, I'd like to somehow solve the problem of my brother and my disabled brother and disabled sister in Chicago, who are uh, have significant. One has acute and porphyria. The other one has his blood sugar on admission last week was over 800. Uh, and I'd like to figure out how to create a situation for to help them because my mom's last words to me were, "Jamie, take care of your brother." Mm. You know, Rick. So. Um, yeah, I'd like to, uh, I would like to have somehow get that problem under control, see that my grandchildren grow up, go to this wedding, watch you guys graduate because, and watch my juniors graduate, take on another class and, and hope that God gives me the time to, to do that. And to continue, uh, the one thing I've done since I've uh, retired is I have, I average probably, 10 books a month <laughs> you know I'm just I'm reading anything now what I read is a lot of people would not I read science fiction I read science fantasy I read military history I read alternative history but I find it really fascinating and so and I would <laughs> I would like to see some I'd like to see the world come to some sense of peace but that's beyond <laughs> you know that's that's like uh, you know they ask, they ask uh, Miss America, what do you want? Oh, I want world peace. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. <laughs> so anyway, before I die, those are the things I'd like to see. I'd like to, you know, I mean, on a, on, a, on a silly basis, I'd like to lose some weight, get back to playing golf. I'm a pretty decent golfer. I just haven't been playing golf well lately, but I'm still shooting in the low 80s. Uh, but those things are, those are minor I, I just want to enjoy my family, watch the kids grow up. It'd be nice if I was going to be around long enough to see them grow up, but that's not, you know, mm-hmm. we're all going to run out of time. 
one goal I have is next year I want to walk in the out of darkness walk. Uh, uh, the last time I had my daughter and my two sons together and marry my son's um, wife whose husband committed suicide, we went down to Philly and they walked in the, um, the, the walk for out of darkness. It's a 16-hour, uh, 16-mile walk at night, uh, so it's out of darkness. And everybody, to be in it, you have to raise $1,000. I was I thought about doing it, but I'm I can only walk a couple of miles. So my plan is to be ready to walk 16 miles next year. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a goal, you know. Do that. It was a pretty man. Talk about um, an amazing uh, event. Um, you just don't realize how many people have been through this. The pictures of beautiful sons and daughters and husbands and wives and family members and the, and then they give up and they they talk about their stories. You just it, it's just mind-boggling to realize how many people are going through this. And one of the questions is: is it re, is it on the rise because of things like social media? Those are unanswered questions. But you know, and and the other thing that it raises is: why does our country? I mean. Why does our country not do a better job uh, with mental health? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean mental disease. I mean mental health. You, the challenge that you're going to face as a psychiatrist is formidable. Because, you know, in this day and age, everything that you do is measured. And somebody upstairs is measuring your RVUs. You know, how do you, I mean, to me, a challenge that I, for someone like, someone who I think is pretty, um, thinks a lot about what he's going to do. And and, bal- and you know when I hear you talk, I think that you you are going to devote yourself to it. How you're going to do that in a world that has become zeros and ones? That's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. And if we don't figure that out, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. So before I die, what do I want? That's pretty much it. It's a good list. You got a lot of uh, things that would be nice. Like uh, like living a lot lo- living long enough to see those grandkids grow up, maybe yep. get some great grandkids, not just the step grand great grandkids, and uh, you know you got that that tough uh, bed like uh, d- uh, deathbed request, right. and uh, you got a nice athletic endeavor to uh, that was both sounds physically and spiritually engaging to you, right. and that's uh, some good stuff. And and I tell you, watching you guys graduate to me is going to be, I'm I. Why? Well, I'm I'm really intrigued because you know you you telling me that like I love the, the, the loss of the your desire to be a physician to practice medicine and then uh, something about select just right gives Brought it back. It back. Like, what is it? I love. Other than being a fighter pilot or a Catholic priest, being a physician. <laughs> is the coolest thing I could have ever done. Being, a, being, able, being able to meet so many different people, to have them come. If I was a salesman selling uh, ice boxes, I swear I could sell ice boxes to the Eskimos. You know, Because when you think about what we do and the opportunity we are given to interact with so many people, patient and the whole family... I never took care of the patient. I wanted to have everybody involved. And the times I didn't get to do that is the times that I was unsatisfied. Mm -hmm. But being able to do that and then to 
to solve a problem, even if I couldn't solve it, give it the best shot, and then, and I think I'm doing what I was asked to do. You know, I think he put me on the planet. <laughs> yes. My mother, the first time I got hit by a car, said, you are going to be a physician. I knew from that day I was going to be a physician. And the answer is, the good Lord has watched over me so many times. Somebody, whatever he or she or it, its name is, they've watched over me so many I had so many opportunities to be dead or maimed, you know, or to make mistakes that, that you couldn't correct, that... I know I was put where I needed to be, and I know that you guys are going to follow in our footsteps and do a good job. I really do. I do think, uh, and I and the th- my expectation for you guys is, for you all, is to take it further. To not only be a good clinician, but to become a voice, a stronger voice for the patients. Because I think my generation, the baby boomers, failed because we got, we were raised by, I love my mom and dad, but they were born in the Depression. And to me, they wanted me to be a physician to take care of patients, but they saw it as an economic way, you know, raising the status, Mm -hmm. raising the status. I remember when I bought my first Mercedes, how excited my mom was. But through the retrospectoscope, that had nothing to do with it. You know, it, it comes down to we failed we got we got tied up with money. We got tied up with doing things. I I swear I never did anything to make money. But unfortunately, there's a lot of guys. I mean, I made good living. There's no question. But I never did operations because it was going to make me money. You know. And there are so many of my generation that do that kind of. And and the generation behind me. I'm hoping that you guys will come up with a way. Your generation will come up with a way to do a better job of taking care of patients and taking care of physicians, nurses, everybody mm-hmm. who's practicing. You know, do a good job so that medicine isn't painful. Practicing medicine isn't painful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Make it so that everybody who walks in the door says, "Isn't this cool? I get to take care of patients." I, I have a, I have like this friend of mine. Um, Frank Thomas, who drove, he drove a, a submarine until he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. He, he and I would talk, and he'd say, isn't this great, Goodrow? We're going to wake up tomorrow, and we get to do this again. <laughs> and, and it's really, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm just excited that you guys uh, have an unlimited, fu- I think, an unlimited future. I think there's a lot of nonsense going on, but I think the ability to care for patients, your ability to care for patients is going to be uh, spectacular. I don't know if I answered the question. You did, you did. That's good stuff. Uh, And uh, so how do you finish that next prompt, when I die, I want? It's going to happen, no matter what. I've often said um, I don't want to be a burden to anybody in the closing moments of my life. I really, I've taken care of so many patients mm-hmm. who've had terminal illness that we did so many things to, you know, dialysis, uh, long, you know, critical care where no one, everybody was focused on the problem, not looking at the patient. Uh, I came home from vacation and my office manager, Elder Kleber, 
who I revered, other than my mother and my wife, the third most important woman in my life, I revered her. I came home, <laughs> I knew she had a terrible lung disease, a sarcoidosis or something. I came home, and I knew she'd gotten admitted. I went in to see her, and I, I go over in the ICU, and I'm going like, well, yeah, all this stuff, this, this, and this, and this. But I said, she's dead. Hasn't anybody addressed this? She's dead. And I called Matt McCambridge. Who, who I, you know, the the guy who talked about, he's one of the QI guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Matt McCambridge went to St. Thomas More. Mm-hmm. He was an army. And I, I called him and I said, Matt, nobody's focused in on what's, you know, the team is seeing him, but nobody's focused in. And that's the kind of stuff that needs to go away. We need to do a better job mm-hmm. of taking care. He walks in and he said, yeah, she's dead. She was gone. But, so I don't want to be... I would like to, you know, who is it? T.S. Eliot, not with a bang but a whimper. Mm-hmm. Isn't that it? Wasn't that the quote? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would like to go out uh, quietly, maybe just not wake up tomorrow, having read a, you know, have my Kindle by the bedside <laughs> with an unfinished book, um, and just you know, and be remembered as somebody who tried to do the right thing, you know. Um, yeah, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I do not want to die in the hospital. I do not want to die. You know, I, I've thought this stuff through. I've got, it's not that I don't want to be resuscitated, but, uh, you know, I've made it pretty clear to my wife and my family what the limitations are. And my hope is, is by at least doing some of the things I've done, I won't be put in that position. But, you know, um, I know I, I've had a number of, of friends, physicians who died and died very, very well, mm-hmm. you know, guy with ALS, uh, Bill G, I, um, he, he came into my house and sits down and he hands me his uh, CAT scan report and I went, holy shit. I mean, I, I broke into tears because he was going to die of pancreatic cancer. And for a month I got to, they put him over in the, in the hospice unit at Allentown. So I went over, I, I never missed a day. And the last day I wasn't. I was exhausted. Long day, and I said, "No, I'm going." So I go over, daughter, daughter, my wife. We're all sitting in the room, and he's. I walked in, I sat down with him, and I, I had a, I had his hand in my hand. I had his hand on the pulse, and I just said, "Bill, I'm here." You know. It's okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. He literally, he woke up. He looked at me. I, Anne Mary McCullough, who's been a hospice nurse, says it's not unheard of that this happens. At the, you know, there's this, this last moment. He came, I mean, he came up, and he said something to me that I still. I wish I, I was so stunned by it, and then he was gone, and his pulse was gone. I mean, it was like. I mean, he 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 suffered badly, but he died surrounded by family. Me personally, I just soon fall asleep in the bed <laughs> and have, you know, but uh, you know, and somehow I I have thought about it. I would like I will I want to put write a letter, put it in my drawer, and it says to the effect, dear medical students, my name is here's my story. When you dissect me, <laughs> when you dissect me, here's the things I want you to look for. Here they are. Because I, I'm not a, you know, in Catholicism, you know, you couldn't be 
uh, you had to be buried with your body, and the last day you rise from the, you know, all that. And I thought, you know, I might as well make do some good even after I'm dead, which is to allow, because I got some great pathology. <laughs> I've got, I've got some great pathology, man. You know, look at my brain, see what's happened, uh, check my heart out. And then, and I don't know if you've ever known anything about it, but Penn has a great ceremony every year where they they then cremate everybody and they have a ceremony down there and the families of the people whose bodies were donated, they go down and it's 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 a spectacular ceremony. So even in death, you can do something mm-hmm. <laughs> worthwhile. So that's what I want when I die. Nice. Some good stuff. And it's so, I just find it very fascinating that uh, the, the, a person that has uh, seen a lot of death, both personal and professional, uh, you, it, it's not, a, it's not a, a, like a, a vague thing, like how does a person die? You know how people die. And a lot of times it's not well. And uh, to just have very simple desire, like, just go out of my sleep. If I can do that, that'd be great. You know, I've, I've, often, I've said jokingly, well, I wouldn't mind going down on an airplane on my way to Hawaii, but the <laughs> problem is, you know, because my family would be rich, but the problem is, the other people on the airplane would die, so I don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, you know, um, so anyway, yeah. And then, after I die, what do I want? Yeah, how do you finish that prompt? I just hope that my children and their children live in a world where um, they can prosper. Because I'm, mm. you know, the, the, there's some craziness in the world right now. I, I, I really believe that there is somebody out there who's responsible. Divine, what do they call it? Uh, Intervention? A divine purpose. Okay. I think there's, you know, whether it's, I think there's, for me, there's a lot of proof that there is somebody out there, something, someone. And, but every time I look at the news and read about the tragedies that are going on in the world, in the Old Testament, God was angry and righteous and righteous indignation and Sodom and Gomorrah and punishment and everything. And then in the New Testament, he's all-knowing, all-loving, and all-forgiving. And I'm, I'm like, how do you reconcile that? And then at the same time, how many people, how much suffering do you have to have in the world before you intervene? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, are you a passive observer? And That's why there's these terrible things going on. My church and pedophilia, holy cow, how can this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, how can this happen? And, and you watch what's going on uh, in, across the world. Every day there's terrible things going on. And, I mean, uh, somewhere in the Bible it says something about the de- the. The the anti the antichrist gets a thousand years. Well, man, I would prefer that my children not have to live through that. You know, I used to remember as a kid. You know, we were always afraid that the the Russian we lived. You know, always we were within five miles of ground zero. So mm-hmm. when they dropped the bomb on us, we were we knew we were gone. Uh, I also knew that my dad was going to make sure that they paid the they paid the price for doing <laughs> it. Uh, but you know, this stuff that's going on, and. I mean, I, I love this country. I just, man, I mean, how can you not love the country in which you were born and raised, your father fought for? I, I wore the uniform. It's been very, you know, it's been really good to me. And how can we continue down the path that we seem to be going? I mean, there's so much hate and discontent. 
uh, on both sides. How can we, as a country, have the two worst candidates in the history of mankind run for the most powerful job in the world? You know, just doesn't make any sense. It's like there's, we've, we've, all right, there's this cosmic joke that we're going to play on you, and this is the cosmic joke. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would like, I, I hope and pray that my children, their children, and that the whole, you know, that we can somehow come to a sense of everybody has worth, everybody has value, that I'm going to stop minding your business, that I'm going to take care of myself first. My favorite line in my um, Dire Straits is, I got when, when you have that one finger pointing at you, mm-hmm. you have three more fingers pointing back. When I was playing golf yesterday, I was, oh, it's hot. It's just, no, I was just playing back golf. It was me. It was me. I got nobody else to blame. The problem is today, you know, and and the the problem is between economy, germ warfare, you know, you know, uh, the the terrible our, our inner cities are a disaster. We don't value human life anymore. Um, you're about to have a, a baby. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I want your kid to have an incredible future. And and I'm concerned for him. I wish I, there was a way I could change it, but I mean, you're going to be a father, man. You're about to find out. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I've answered your question, but my hope is somehow we can find our way as a, as a world to take a deep breath, relax. You know, that old the amygdala takes over. You want to go out and then punch somebody's light. Then you kind of think it over and you realize, well. You just kind of sort out the pieces of the puzzle. You realize you don't need to do that. That letter that you fire off, before you fire it off, put it in the desk. You know, it, life's, too, life, life's too short to get, to get that upset about anything. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I also see a big parallel between, uh, you know, what you were saying about this my generation of physicians, of, of people turning it into zeros and ones, and then we have to figure out how to keep it human. And in that, for, for your kit, for the, this overall generation, things are splitting, things are being divided, polarized, and, and turned into a binary so strongly, and now and we have to figure out a way to keep it together somehow. We've got to be a society. I mean, it's almost like we need something to happen, and that's mm-hmm. the worst thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the ships show up in the sky and start, you know, then the world will, you know, mm-hmm. I mean... Even in the United States before World War II, there was significant disparity. There, it wasn't clear that we weren't going to go in on the German side mm. because, you know, and now, right now, we're so, and I, I, don't, I don't know if the X's, the zeros and ones, social media, people expressing themselves without thinking about it, Twitter, which I think is the worst thing that ever <laughs> happened on the planet, Twitter, you know, and then you can take it back. You know, you can say something awful, but then you can take it back. Uh, I mean, where did this come from? And, and as you know, you're right, because we have dehumanized humans. Mm-hmm. And, God, man, when I, whenever I read an article in um, Medscape or whatever, I always read the comments. And you read the comments and you go, where do these people, you know, how did, how did you come to this conclusion? <laughs> how, did, how did you come to... He's such a hateful guy, I hate him. Doesn't, doesn't that ever sink in that you said that? I remember sitting there one day with Lauren, Lauren Wilhelm. 
and we were talking about something, and they were passing out a bunch of paper, and I said, uh, here we go again, you know, shredding the, the rainforest. And then I said, oh, by the way, here's a <laughs> Here's a hand on Laura, and she called me on it. And I went, "Oh my God, don't point out people's hypocrisy." <laughs> I started laughing. I thought, "That's really good. Way to go. I love it." And that's what I want your generation to do: point it out, and do it in such a way that it's it makes you laugh and sit back and say, "You know what? You're right." It is. What are we yelling about? I don't know. So uh, before we wrap things up, uh, because we've had a really great conversation, I've, I've we've been talking about this. We've been trying to r- wrestle each other down. I'm glad we got together. I'm so glad, and it, it's it's lived up to my expectations in in the greatest ways. Um, I want to know um, before we get to concluding thoughts. I want to know what uh, what do you what are your con- what's your conception of of any sort of what happens after life? Do you are you are you anywhere on that spectrum of, of like are you are, do you buy into the to the, to the your you know your Catholic faith that you've been raised in? Are and like how has it changed? What do you, where are you right now? There's a couple of thoughts, and I'll share them with you. My first thought is, I hope I get to see the stars. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I hope there was a movie years ago, and I forget who was in it, but in it, the woman was wearing a device and the device the results of which could be broadcast onto an, a tape and then somebody and when she dies the es, her essence goes up and the guy who is actually watching it says we get to go to the stars you know we get to go to the stars and there's a part of me that, that would like to based on everything I don't know if we're gonna, it happens or not but I would like to explore because there's more life out there. We know that. They just discovered water on Mars. <laughs> that's pretty mm-hmm. that's pretty big stuff. Mm-hmm. That's pretty big stuff. And when you think that the the the, the universe has been around, they think six billion years. That's mm-hmm. a few few years to give or take. I hope we get to go to the stars. Me personally, I don't see myself sitting in a choir singing Hosanna all day long, because that doesn't mean to me. So does my intellect go away and I just become this all-worshipping soul? I have a little trouble with that. I don't want to be in a choir singing Hosanna, 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 you know, remember from Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's another part of me that, I, you know, the closer you get. The other part of it is when you think about it, we never die. The reality is, and one of the reasons I don't mind being cremated is because every atom in our... Every atom in our body cannot be destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know that that maybe I would live on as a carbon product that'll be incorporated into something else a million years from now. So is that eternity? I don't know. I don't know. But there's a part of me that says you never. I mean, our consciousness, that electrical, you know, that that electrical activity that creates who Eugene Kim is or who Jimmy Goodrow is. Or whatever, I don't know where that goes, and I—that's I, the part that I wish would go to the, go out and get to explore mm. the planets, you know, without the problem of light speed and all, all mm. that stuff. But there's another part of me that says, doesn't matter. You know, first of all, it doesn't matter what happens when I die because <laughs> it's going to happen. And the other is, I, you know, I think I will get recycled. I hope to, I hope I get recycled in a in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've thought about it. The closer I get to it. But the answer is, 
And I, am I afraid? Uh, you know, I don't want to die, I, but I don't want to be around so long that I can't mm-hmm. think, be, see, do, act. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, I, I've thought about it at different levels. And, and yes, I do believe I've had too many experiences that I have to believe that there's something at a different plane. Is it is it a parallel universe or is it out of phase? You know, the, how the phys- physicists talk about things being out of phase, mm-hmm. that there's something else going on. I mean, you, you hear about, the, you know, uh, ghosts and all this kind of stuff. But, but I do think there's something beyond this. What it's going to be like, I have, I have my wishes, but, you know, I'll, I'll hope. And, and I really want to see Kev. I want to see, Sh- I want to see Sean and Kevin. <coughs> my mom and dad again, somehow. But I don't know if that really, you know, this, this vision, you know, I've often thought about it. You get up there, and the very first person you meet is someone that you've wronged. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, how do you do that? You know, how do you say to somebody, hey, I screwed up, or is, is everybody so happy and euphoric that it doesn't matter? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, when you think about the number of times you've screwed up in your lifetime, <laughs> you've hurt somebody's feelings, there's a long list of people I'd prefer mm. not to run into. <laughs> an angry mom. <laughs> if I could, you know, maybe that's what hell is. Yo, you, you, you get to go to that. <laughs> door number two is for you. They're waiting for you. They have a few things they want to tell you. So, anyway. Oh, man. Do- uh, Jim, uh, so we've been talking for a couple hours now. I don't even really know. Sun's nearing sunset, and uh, I've I've just been had so much fun. This has been really lovely, and I just hearing you go on these stories is so much. It's a true pleasure. You're an amazing storyteller, and uh, I want I want to give you the floor um, to whoever's listening through these little mic- this right. microphone. Um, to, to whoever's gotten to the end of this conversation it's like Jim Goodrow cool dude want to hear just uh, I, I connected with, with any part of your story whether it's the physician whether it's uh, the grieving father whether it is caring for someone who has uh, who has chronic medical issues um, I just want to give you the floor to do, address them directly uh, to say whatever you want to say I've appreciated the opportunity of being able to say all this stuff out loud I've written this story a couple times but never finished it um, I desperately hope that I have been an effective I would like to think I've been effective at being a father being a husband uh, being a son uh, being an educator, being a doctor but I know that I have not been as, you know, you have your aspirations and then there's <laughs> reality but, but I think that when I look back, there's a quote, and I'm, I'm going to say it wrong. Um, it comes in three parts. And the first part is, don't regret the past. You can be upset about it, but there's nothing you can do to change it. Face your, face, you know, whatever you're doing now, face it with confidence. And with the future, face it without fear. You know, so three things. You can't, whatever happened before, you can't change it. You can learn from it, but don't, don't wallow in it. Mm-hmm. Get over it. It's done. Whatever we're doing today, do the best you can do. You know, use your, think it through. That's the one, the big thing. Just think it through and try to do the right thing. 
and of course we can argue about that. And the <laughs> other is, don't be afraid of tomorrow. Just, it's coming, but prepare yourself. And I, it's a quote that I, it was in a book I was reading, and I went and looked it up, and it's anonymous. You know, mm-hmm. I often, often try to find where the, the source of that, because I, I will, you know, I, I will quote. Uh, uh, there are things, there's phrases that I use in Madison. I say, look, I was not the author of this. I give credit to so-and-so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are my three thoughts. You know, present, fu- you know, past, present, and future. It's okay. All right? Good stuff. This has been Jim Goodrow on death. For the purposes of this interview, um, what is your name and how do you spell it? Uh, James uh, Joseph Patrick Goodrow. The last name is spelled G-O-O-D-R-E-A-U. Gotcha. And uh, would you like me to call you James? Would you like me to call you Dr. Goodrow? Uh, Jim? Jim. Jim? Jim it will be. And um, what is your age? Uh, 71. 71. And uh, uh, when I say home, what do you think of? Well, for the last um, 30 odd years, this is my home. This is probably the first geographic home I in a sense I ever really had mm-hmm. because most of my life was spent moving so family the physical plant uh, Lehigh Valley Hospital it's been my home for since 1981 gotcha and before that were you, I know you you served in the military uh, did your parents serve as well my story starts uh, when my dad uh, was playing ball for Xavier University. My dad was a fantastic athlete. Mm-hmm. Japanese uh, changed his life forever by bombing Pearl Harbor. He uh, went through and became a member of the Army Air Corps and served in the Marianas. So he was flying uh, out of uh, Saipan, Tinian, and Guam against the Japanese Empire. He wanted to marry my mom before he went to war. She said no, uh, for obvious reasons. I came home, she, Dad came home, married my mom, and uh, sure enough, about uh, 11 months later, I was born March 17, 1947. Um, interesting, my dad was stationed at McGill Air Force Base outside of Tampa. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I was conceived, <laughs> but I was actually born in uh, uh, Texas. Gotcha. So my dad was an Air Force officer. Uh, he was one of the first, he made the transition from the Army Air Corps to mm-hmm. the United States Air Force, was born in 1947, which mm-hmm. was the year of my birth. So nope. I'm one of the first children <laughs> uh, of, the Air Force. of the Air Force. <laughs> and over the next uh, 20 um uh, 20 plus years, uh, we moved all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember uh, a little bit of living in Fort Worth, um, being chased by tarantulas in a house, uh, scorpions, uh, riding uh, little ponies. Uh, then uh, my sister was born. My, I have a younger sister, Mary Beth. Um, and then we moved to Omaha, Nebraska, where Dad was stationed at the Strategic Air Command, head, Air Command headquarters. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, what I remember about that was uh, that was the first time I was hit by a car. Oh. Um, there was, uh, you know, usual. We were living in a community that was all townhomes, uh, kind of a big U, and I think I was just one of the gang, you know, mm-hmm. cowboys and Indians. I ran out between two cars, and the next thing I knew, I was uh, stuck up against a curb. And Oof. then I remember being in an ambulance with my mom. I remember arriving at some place, and the next thing I knew, I was in this dark green room with a piece of radiologic equipment hanging <laughs> over my head, a black, ice-cold table, and some guy was beating on me with what turned out to be a reflex hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand why he was beating on me. And then I kind of didn't remember anything for probably a couple of weeks. I remember waking, oh, wow. I remember waking up in a cage. Um, it... it I was in a children's hospital in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and I remember waking up in a cage, and that was what I, I remember was being cold, and I remember a uh, one of these metal um, bedpans laying next to me, and um, then I remember my mom sitting by the bedside. Uh, and um, how old were you again? I was pre-kindergarten, kindergarten. Oh, so, so you were probably real five. Wow, I was okay. five. And um, here's a kid whose father had played football his whole life, and my dad was grooming me. I already had a football, could throw a spiral at age five. And uh, the neurosurgeon or somebody had told my mom, if I ever got hit in the head again, I would die. So there ended my football career, Mm. which was okay. (laughs) Uh, We lived in Omaha for uh, another couple of years, and my brother Rick was born then uh, Rick is now 66 we then moved to uh, Ramey Air Force Base Puerto Rico mm-hmm. um, it was at one of the end of Puerto Rico it was back in the day when the Air Force uh, main aircraft was something called the B-36 it was a big aircraft that they used to fly around the world to scare the, to scare the Russians uh, mutual annihilation and destru- destruction back then, and we lived um, in, a, in a place, one hundred one D Street. I remember that because we were right near the officers' club where we used to go swim, which was right on a cliff. Beautiful place, and our dads would be gone for days at a time. And then when they would come home, they would announce themselves by flying right over our homes, which would shake the walls because these aircrafts are so big. We'd run down to the officers' club, and we would stand on the edge of the cliff by a fence. And the B-36s would be, would go by in a line, and it had a bubble at the top, and you could actually you could see the people waving at us. And it was a great time because, well, one, it was really it was interesting. And the other is, as soon as they got home, they would open up the bomb bay doors, and we knew that we were about to get 100 pounds of pistachios, <laughs> which they would pick up in uh, Nuasur, uh, Morocco. And they would bring home these gigantic, well, at the time, to my hands, gigantic uh, oranges, which were incredible uh, because they were coming from North Africa. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't get anything like that. And then, of course, they would always bring home French champagne, which meant nothing to me at the time. <laughs> but uh, we lived there for a couple of years. Um, and my younger brother, Joe, uh, was born there. And my sister, um, 
Susie was born there. Uh, and my dad made lieutenant colonel uh, in the Air Force. Uh, and we moved from this little tiny house to a big house. Um, and the only tragedy I can remember then was my teacher, Minnie Mallory was her name. Uh, I had her from first grade and second grade, and she got married without asking my permission. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was really upset because she was, uh, I was going to marry her. I, she was going to have to wait a couple of years. We, um, we left Puerto Rico because my grandfather, uh, who was quite ill, had perished. He had, uh, my grandfather, Onloff, he was my mom's uh, father, he was a heavy smoker. He had been in World War I and had been gassed by the Germans, so he had been mustard gassed during the conflict. Mm -hmm. And whether it was that that caused his lung cancer or that and smoking or smoking only. So we moved to... Uh, we moved to Chicago uh, for a brief period. Um, they put me in Francis Scott Key School, um, and uh, you know they were taking care of my grandfather's estate and everything else. And I was taken to the school and introduced because I was only going to be there a couple months. I didn't know at the time, and I was introduced as Jamie Goodrow from Puerto Rico. <laughs> and that evening, I got beaten up by a bunch of kids going home because they didn't want any Puerto Ricans in their school. Mm -hmm. uh, and that <laughs> that pattern persisted for about a week till I finally figured out how to go out of another door of the school to avoid being beaten up. But then when I went out the other door of the school, I got lost. Mm. So I wandered the streets of Chicago for about an hour and eventually found myself on Austin, worked my way down the street because I kind of knew where I was, walked up to the home, there were police cars, lights flashing, and I came wandering in to, you know, wondering what was going on. Well, it was me. I was <laughs> missing in action. And usual things in my family would be I was greeted with a, you know, a big hug and then a spanking. <laughs> and... And it was about four in the afternoon, they put me to bed. I never understood why, because I had to be put to bed. But I was put to bed. <laughs> um, and the re But again, the reason I was being beaten up was because uh, I was a Puerto Rican, which, uh, you know, just tells you a lot about society. And my, actually, my father had to come to the school in his uniform, and he had to tell the class that he had gone to school in Chicago, he had played football for one of the Catholic schools, and he'd actually gone to Austin High School. Um, so then we, we moved on to South Louisiana, where we were, uh, he was stationed in Barksdale. And, uh, oh, um, <laughs> I left out another salient point. So in trying to avoid being hit by cars, I would move, I would move around. And finally, they stopped beating me up. So I'm walking home from school one day, and I had learned to look both ways uh, from the first accident. So we wa I wandered home, but we lived on something called, it was 5950 Midway Park. So I'm wandering home, just kind of daydreaming. Unbeknownst to me, what I had done is I had crossed across the first part of the Midway. A Midway in Chicago is a one-way street, a one-way street in the middle is about a 10 yard wide island of green grass. Somehow I had wandered across the first one onto the island, looked up, I could see my mom, my grandmother, my sister, and I remember my sister yelling at me, where have you been? We've been waiting you for lunch. I looked left dutifully and stepped out only to be hit by the car coming from the right. Oh no! Uh, 
And um, basically that time I wound up, I had Ford backwards in my skull because I I'd hit, uh, hit on the hood. And that was, I took out the right clavicle and, um, you know, I was in the hospital and not feeling particularly well. But it's when I discovered what a, a torn medial meniscus was. Mm -hmm. Nobody had told me I had torn my medial meniscus, but I found out because my knee would lock. But nobody was really examining me. This is, you know, did. And so I figured out on my own that if I pulled my heel into my butt as hard as I could, I could hear the thunk. <laughs> and then I could move my knee. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually lived with that. That was like I was eight. I lived with that until I was about 16. Um, so anyway, I survived that injury um, two times a charm. <laughs> uh, we, we then moved from there to Barksdale where life was good. We, we lived in a, uh, the bomber base and, you know, just I went to a Catholic school. We, we got our first air conditioner, I, window air conditioner. I remember being in Louisiana, how hot it was. Uh, we kind of, uh, at that point, dad got sent, because my father had been in college when they drafted him, they wound up sending my dad to the University of Pittsburgh. So I was uh, got exposed to Pennsylvania, we wound up living in um, Pittsburgh, never saw the sun because it was <laughs> Pittsburgh back in the days. Um, my dad was uh, getting a bachelor's degree in administration, mm -hmm. My, and we were living in... Monopoly homes. There's an area called Wilkinsburg, rolling hills, deep valleys, and it looks like somebody went to Monopoly and designed the homes based on the hotels because there were literally a thousand of them dotting the hills because everybody worked for the steel industry. And um, I learned to be an altar boy there, learned, learned the Mass in Latin, kneeling on concrete floors. Um, I remember the first mass I ever served as an altar boy. This was a, a Slovak church, dark, black, probably a foot of soot. Uh, the, the there were about six people at the first mass, all little old ladies with mantillas and crystal rosary beads. Uh, the priest grunted in my general direction. Uh, the the surface of the uh, of the vestibule of the church was this thick, thick red carpet, and I remember going through the Latin Mass, and I heard my fellow altar boys start to cry, and I'm looking over, and I'm what, trying to figure out what's going on, and I watched a pool of, of purple spread around his cassock on the floor, <laughs> because the poor kid had uh, urinated in his, um, in his cassock. <laughs> um, what else do I remember about <laughs> Pittsburgh? Um, if you can imagine how I was greeted when I showed up at baseball practice for the first time wearing a football helmet, because my mother made me wear a football <laughs> helmet. Talk about interesting conversations. I got pretty good at trying to defend myself in the fist fights, because uh, I was catching a lot of flack. I was probably the first kid in America who had a uh, fiberglass batting helmet, because up to that point in time, in the major leagues, they never wore... Uh, batting helmets, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, somebody in Pittsburgh, somewhere along the way, decided to create fiberglass um, 
uh, batting helmets, uh, it cost twenty-five dollars. Mm. Now that was nineteen fifty-seven. Twenty-five dollars was a lot of money. Mm. But you also know that your skull about that time is pretty much the way it's going to be as an adult. So I wore that helmet all the way through college where I played ball. Uh, uh, somehow I lost it, but uh, that was a real adventure. Then we were packing our bags. We were moving to March Air Force Base in mm -hmm. Riverside, California. I was so excited because I was going to go to, we were going to California. You know, the Beach Boys that were just in their <laughs> early days. I was going to learn to surf. Our truck was packed. You know, we were really experts at this. We knew how to put our clothes together and pack and get ready to move. And um, we literally, the guy closed the door on the truck. We were getting in the car. My dad got a phone call, and they moved us back to um, They said, nope, we're going to Omaha. <laughs> so we wind up going to Omaha, Nebraska, where I spent uh, five years going to grade school. Nothing really exciting happened. Uh, played a lot of sports. The, my mom got her master's degree uh, in reading education from the University of Omaha, Nebraska. That's when I discovered my love of reading uh, because she would take me up to the university and put me in the library, which had a, a book show that had traveled the country. And I think that summer I read something like 100 books. Oh, wow. No, it was, you know... I mean, there were some no notable books, but it was a lot of um, the, the Hardy Boys, probably, a, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but uh -huh. the Hardy Boys, uh, Tom Swift, and Tom Corbett Space Cadet, but uh, the little town that we lived in, Bellevue, Nebraska, had a quaint little library, and I read every science fiction book that was <laughs> on the shelf, and uh, I used to spend all my hours there. That was Life was pretty good, you know, Midwest. Uh, the classic thing about Bellevue, Nebraska, was that's the home of the phrase. It was the snow was up to my chin, and I walked uphill both ways to school, <laughs> because we we lived about a mile and a half from uh, St. Mary's, and it literally was uphill. It was downhill coming home, but we didn't have buses. You know that was back in the day, uphill downhill. I had my first paper route. I had my only paper route. I learned all about um, how not to save money, which uh, I had to learn later in life. But uh, the paper route was kind of fun. Uh, when you have a paper route as a family, it becomes a family affair. Because during the week, you can deliver papers yourself. But on Sundays, when the paper back then weighed about 10 pounds, mm. uh, you know, my parents used to have to drive me around. Um, and then uh, had one of the great moves of our lifetime. We uh, uh, moved to Spain. Um, How old? I was going to start high school. Okay. So, uh, you know, nothing exciting. I mean, I, life was good. And one day we picked up and uh, we drove across the country uh, to McGuire Air Force Base. And back then uh, we flew a DC-6. That's a, uh, That was the last of the... Uh, uh, prop planes before the Air Force got into jets for mm. travel. And we flew across the Atlantic at night to the Azores, which was seemed like about three-day flight. We landed in the Azores, we, we ate, and then we got back on the same plane because they had to refuel. And we flew, and as we're flying over Spain and over the high plateau where Madrid is, it's very 
brown. Everything was brown. And here we, we had come from uh, Nebraska, which is a little brown, but we lived in Bellevue, which was very green. I remember we landed uh, in Spain. They opened the door of the aircraft, and I thought I had stepped into an oven <laughs> because it was high summer. The temperature had to be in the high 90s. And we got out, and this Air Force base is on a big plateau, flat. And as we took us into the terminal, I could hear this cat screaming. We had had to send our cat to Spain oh. a month earlier, Maverick. Mm-hmm. We had we'd been, we'd had been and I heard this cat screaming, and then sure enough, there was Maverick. And we had a great adventure in Europe. We The first, first thing we did is they moved us into this really nice hotel, the Camadore, and uh, it was a really swanky hotel with suites. And I was introduced to mantequilla, which is uh, Spanish butter, which is, has, a, has flavor as opposed to American margarine. Um, and I remember my mom giving me um, 25 pesetas. And she said, you have to go across the street and get the bread. And they had a you know, panaderia, uh, which is a, the, the bakery. And I went over there with my 25 pesetas, and I tried to tell the lady that I wanted a loaf of bread. And she was trying to tell me that I was late because there was no more bread left. Because <laughs> they, they would make a certain amount of bread in the morning. And so I finally figured out that she was pointing to a bunch of empty bins, and I had, I had come too late. So I learned you had to go early. And I also learned uh, how, to, how to ask for a loaf of bread. <laughs> bread in Spain was really unique, you know. Uh, having survived on Wonder Bread my whole life up to that point, to actually have a loaf of bread that was hot, uh, fairly long, and had pieces of plaster and other whatever was mixed in with the flour. It was, it was real bread. Uh, that, that always uh, was a treat. We finally moved into an apartment um, on Avenida Generalismo. When I lived there, uh, Francisco Franco was still in power. Uh, now, he was, he was a very bad dude. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was very authoritarian. Uh, you think uh, you think that the KGB was mean? You think that the Spetsnaz? Uh, who, who was it in uh, in East Germany? I forget. These guys, the the Guardia Civil, were very very tough people. It was kind of disconcerting to walk around the street and see people carrying uh, Thompson submachine guns, but they did. Mm-hmm. And as American youth, we knew right away never to cross them because they they took a very dim behavior. Uh, view of our misbehaving in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we wound up moving into a gorgeous apartment. Um, 77 Avenida Generalismo, huge. Um, and our adventure started. We I used to get up every day at 5. We'd catch a bus at 5.30. It would take us the 30 miles out to the high school, mm-hmm. where I went to freshman, sophomore, and junior year in high school. Um, and, but we lived downtown, uh, so while you would take traditional classes, I took Spanish every year, when we were living in downtown, there was a guy, a gentleman, Senor, Senor Bernardo, who had been a professor at one of the universities, who was on the wrong side of the Spanish War, and so he couldn't get a job. So what happened was, he wound up being passed from American family to American family, so every day he would go to a different American family and spend uh, an hour or two in the evening with us. So because he was there, and 
I was the I was Ichiban, the number one son. <laughs> I wound up spending a lot of time with him, so I learned to pensar, oír, ver, hablar, uh, respirar. All of the verbs in Spanish, I learned to think, read, write, uh, and carry on conversations. And so for a year we did that, and then we would wander the city with him, <laughs> and he would talk about history and things. Uh, it was, he was a great guy, and he smoked these terrible cigarettes, Celtics. They were these lo- short little cancer tubes with black uh, tobacco. And uh, But I learned a lot from him about life. And... Uh, but living in Madrid was incredible because you were immersed in history. Right down the road from us was uh, the Prado, one of the world's great art museums. We used to go down there, you know, all the high school kids, so we could just stare at all the naked, the pictures of naked women. Because uh, on one side they had, it's a famous thing. I think Ga- uh, Goya did it, or I can't remember. But on one side is the woman laid out on the couch in a beautiful silk outfit, and the next one on the other side is her in the same outfit, but no outfit. <laughs> so, you know, we were uh, we were learning our art from her. Um, the city itself was just, it was incredible. I mean, we were two blocks from the Real Madrid Stadium, mm. uh, so we were introduced to soccer, which was, you know, we thought, how come you don't pick the ball up and throw it, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> uh, which was great. We learned to play a fair amount of soccer. Whenever we played a Spanish team, we would just get our brains beaten out because uh, we we had no idea what it was. And then while we were there, we tra- uh, we traveled and traveled and traveled. I would uh, try out for the baseball team. I'd be the starting second baseman. I'd come home. Mom, we have games this weekend. And I'd come home, and the the doors would be open on the car, the luggage be on the roof, and off we would go. So uh, we traveled all, every weekend, every other weekend. We were on our way to some little village in Spain to see some cathedral, to learn about the people. Mm-hmm. And every time we went into one of the cathedrals, my sister Mary Beth would look up and say, I know we've been here before. We've been here before. We've been here before. But we, <laughs> we learned a lot about uh, Spanish culture, uh, Toledo, which is a famous city south uh, of Madrid, we spent a lot of time there, and then we traveled all through Sevilla and Cordoba. And uh, one of the great adventures that we had was we went, we drove down. We had a 1956 Mercury that uh, it was on its last legs, and I swear every time we pointed it away from Madrid, something would break. And then when we would fix it and turn around and point back at Madrid, it would work perfectly. <laughs> but uh, we went down to, my mom says one time, we're, we're going to go to um, Granada. Now, Granada is the famous Span- uh, Muslim, uh, Arabic, Spanish uh, city in the mountains of southern Spain. Well, my mom says to us, it's in southern Spain. It'll be nice and warm. It, she forgot it was a mile high, and it was cold. So we had... Uh, we. But we got to go to the Alhambra. We had um, Washington Irving, I think, was the guy, the guy who... Um, he's written a lot of poetry about it. The, the culture, the two cultures together created incredible uh, buildings with, uh, with facades and, and artwork that looked like lace. Mm. Uh, it was really uh, quite, uh, quite beautiful. 
And, uh, you know, you learned, of course, you learned about the Spanish culture, which was El Cid, who was the guy who came from uh, Madrid and drove the Moors out of the country. Mm-hmm. But their culture, the, the culture of the state, it's a blended culture. But probably one of the most fun we, things we did when we were in Granada was to go to Las Cuevas de Ronda. The, we drove through these mountain passes. I mean, there were places you couldn't believe we would have taken a, a, a station wagon, got all <laughs> the way to the top of this mountain, and there was a little hand-painted sign, Las Cuevas de Ronda. Um, and in the wall of the, this cliff was a, a, a gate with a um, right iron gate over it. And we're looking around, and I look down into the valley. So I yell down in the valley. This guy yells up. And about 20 minutes later, he shows up. He opens up the gate. He's got ropes over both shoulders. He's got oil lanterns. <laughs> I carry one. We go to the other. And we did uh, a, a, a kilometer into it. And, I mean, there are these original cave drawings. Mm. I mean, from, you know... I don't know. I, I don't never really check, but there were thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I mean, mastodons and all these different things. Uh, and this was basically because Spain at the time was so isolationist, they weren't letting the the uh, the look at what the, what's the term archaeologists into mm-hmm. these places. So we did that. That was fantastic. And then we had adventures. We drove. Oh God, do we we we. We drove north through, I never made it to, to um, Barcelona or to Pamplona, but we made it to Zaragoza, which was interesting. And then we drove up to Lourdes in France. Uh, my mom and dad, we were born and raised Catholic, uh, deep and a uh, very religious family. I was an altar boy, all that stuff. And we went to Lourdes. Now, I don't know what if you know much about Lourdes, mm-hmm. but... Lourdes is one of the sites where the Blessed Virgin uh, appeared to several children, mm. and uh, it's the Catholic Church has they put these visions to the test. I don't know what the test is, but in the end, they, they declared that this apparition was real. She visited these children many, many times, and they built a church there. And one of the things is they have a grotto. And there's a spring, and when you walk into this, the walls of the grotto are covered with wheelchairs and crutches of people who have immersed themselves in these waters and have been cured. So anybody who goes to Lourdes gets their bottle of Lourdes water and then brings it home and gives it to, now, whether it's, you know, who knows for sure, you and I, you know, what are miracles? I don't know, but the answer is... Um, that was really interesting. And then we went back at night and talked about the power of people together. There were probably four or 5,000 people walking at night, a mass that was outdoors. Everybody had a candle. And then you're, you're walking this pathway around the church and singing Ave Maria. Oof. And it was, it was one of those moments that just caught your attention. Um, so that was pretty spectacular. We then we got up to uh, Paris, and all I remember about Paris was if you spoke English, they didn't like you. <laughs> so we figured out right away to pretend like we were Spanish. We would speak mm. nothing but uh, Espanol. 
but I remember, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower, and I remember Notre Dame, and I remember uh, there was a chapel called Saint Chapelle, and um, one of the things I remember about Saint Chapelle was how beautiful the stain, the artwork was. You know, I am sure there are artists today producing work that is incredible, but the works of these masters back then, the the way they would do the the ceiling and the walls. Uh, if you looked at the other walls, you thought you were looking at a star field. Uh, it was, it was really, I mean, it was really uh, amazing. We then wound, our, wound up going into Germany, and all I remember about Germany was the car decided it was time to die. <laughs> so we finally made it to this uh, camp outside of Mainz, Germany, and we... Um, Got up in the middle. We were in the, got there in the middle of the night. We pitched our tent. <clears throat> My dad had bought a tent that he and I learned to take, put up and take down in a few minutes. And I remember waking up in the morning to realize that we pitched our tent in the main, right on the main road of the camp. So we woke up to people beeping their horns at us. We had to move the tent. <laughs> and then, because everywhere we went, we took wiffle balls and wiffle bats. These I don't know if you remember. And we wound up staying at the camp for a couple of days because we were trying to get our car fixed. And we wound up uh, teaching. There were Poles, there were Czech, Slovaks, there were Germans. And we wound up teaching them American baseball with <laughs> wiffle balls. And oh my God. And it would be so funny because the sun would barely be up and they'd be knocking on our tent door to wake us up to come out and play <laughs> wiffle ball. And they'd run the bases backwards and all that. I remember my dad and I, we were trying to figure out what was wrong with the car, so my dad and I, we, we go find this German mechanic, and we're trying to, you know, language barrier, I'm speaking Spanish, a little bit of English, everything else, and um, and my dad is saying, you know, it's like, it's, it's like the battery is discharging, but it won't, the, the alternator won't charge it, and we're going back and forth, and then finally it goes, oh, the batteria! It's like, no way that we've been saying that. We go, we go all the way back. He comes with us. We flip, flip up the roof, and he's looking, he's looking, looking. I look down, and there's a single wire that had been hooked from the alternator to the battery, and it's hanging loose. So the alternator was not charging the battery, so we fixed it and charged it up. <laughs> we, uh, I remember we crossed the Mainz River. We went into Mainz, went to Mass, and when you live in Spain back then, unfortunately they had TB in their uh, TB was still prevalent in their uh, bovine uh, mm -hmm. population, so we couldn't have ice cream uh, or um, milk. Why would why would we eat mantequilla then? I never thought about that. <laughs> That's really funny. We we could have butter, but we couldn't have milk, and we couldn't have ice cream. So we were in Germany. We had our first ice cream. And it was wonderful. We were so excited. And I remember we go down and we go to the landing of the, uh, at Mainz to the ferry, and the ferry is pulled out. And it's about halfway across the river. My mom is standing there because it's the last ferry of the day. My mom is standing there with her hands out going like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? The lady on the ferry saw us, turned the ferry around, brought it back over, got us on board, took us across. Now, you think that would happen in New York City? <laughs> <laughs>
But we then, what did we do? Then we took, we, we kept driving, and we went to, if you ever get a chance, you got to take Mackenzie to Landau, Austria. We, we crossed through Oberammergau, which is a famous place where there is a passion play every 10 years. We went through the Black Forest down, and we wound up sort of between Austria and Switzerland and Germany. There's a lake, there's a town called Landau, and it was like something out of a... Um, the sound of music and we're sitting there we're having ice cream again it was great and my cousin had come and visited with us earlier the month from Chicago and I'm reading his letter and that day they were going to ride by train into into Zurich so we were near Zurich we drove to, to Zurich we were standing on the train station platform they showed up they went what are you guys doing here but it was funny because, again, once again, once our car knew it was heading back toward Madrid, it was functioning. And then we made it home. Um, Madrid was, I mean, living in Madrid was fantastic. Besides learning Spanish, besides uh, just all these incredible adventures, traveling all over the place, uh, uh, it was a very simple time because over there you were in a very protected, uh, quiet, um, very... There wasn't a lot of, as, one, as somebody once said, uh, I finally met some classmates from, from Madrid years and years later. And one of the guys said, all right, guys, did anybody get laid in high school? We all went, nah, not me, you know, good <laughs> Catholic kids. And uh, then we turn around, we come back to the United States. Man, the culture in the United States had changed in the, in the six, 19, I graduated from high school in 65, so 61, 62, 63, the Vietnam mm-hmm. War, mm-hmm. cultural change, the rage and everything else. I come back to the United States, I go to a Catholic school, and oh my God, did the world change. First of all, I ran into, my best friend was Dennis Monroe, African-American kid. He was an Air Force kid, great kid. We had a, you know, we had a, I met him that the summer coming home. We had a great time. And one of the first things that happened is I go to a, a, a Catholic school and I'm asked, why am I, why am I friends with that, that nigger? It's like, what? You know, and this is a Catholic school? <laughs> you know. And then the others, we had a, a significant uh, uh, Mexican-American population. And oh my God, it was, I mean, the, it was, it was so terrible to watch how they treated these kids. And it's like, yeah, I'm from the Air Force, and everybody's treated the same. And also, I'm in the civilian world, and it was really unco- it was it was pretty uncomfortable. Um, and the other was, I'd always been um, through high school. I'd always been um, in the advanced classes. Mm-hmm. So I come back to the United States, and I'm told, "Oh, well, you have to take all these classes." And I said, "I did that last year. I did that last year. I did that last year." So anyway. I, I deliberately kept my books in school and never took them home and still, <laughs> you know, and they finally put me into advanced classes. But it was it was pretty depressing to come back and find the world changed as much as it had. Um, and, you know, discovering that the, the uh, sex, drug, and rock and roll had sort of worked its way into, into life. And that was a real kind of... Um, you know, a, a, awakening, and I wasn't so sure I really, li- I liked it, mm-hmm. and 
and the re and what I my the way I reacted to it was I went to the golf course. There was a nine-hole golf course across the fence from where we lived, and I went and learned how to play golf. And it was that was good because uh, there was one other kid and I. We would play golf all the time, and I never had to deal with the 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 drama at school. Uh, and so anyway, I wound up uh, graduating and. I'm all set to go to the University of Arizona, and I, I graduate, I come down the stairs, and my dad says, we're packing the car, we're moving to Louisiana, <laughs> and off we went, and we show up at the, this same bomber base, my dad had been at Barksdale Air Force Base, and um, it's like, okay, what are we going to do for school? Uh, so the first thing, um, my mom calls... There's a little school in Monroe, Louisiana, which is 100 miles away from Barksdale. She calls him up and says, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. The guy says, uh, uh, she says, here's his SATs, here's his ACTs, here's his national merit. All the guy wanted to know was, did I graduate from high school? Mm-hmm. That's all he wanted to know. Okay, he's in. So college was, you know, we didn't even go visit the campus. I was in. Uh, it's part of the old state um, teachers, uh, you know how mo- a lot of the states have teachers' colleges at various corners of the state. Mm-hmm. It's an old. It was an old. You don't see them much anymore. They were dedicated to teachers. Okay. This school was dedicated to teaching and to pharmacy. Okay. So anyway, so I was going to go to Northeast State, fine. But the biggest thing my mom had to ha- had to have us do was I had to have a job because when you were in, living in Spain, you could not. Um, you could not have a job at the pool. You could not uh, caddy at the golf course. You couldn't work at the commissary because all jobs had to be held by Spanish nationals. Okay. So I come back to the United States, and my mom is, is absolutely bound and determined that I was going to get a job. My so it's the start of the summer. I get a job making forty-four cents an hour, <laughs> waiting on cars at the Kokomo Drive-In in Bossier, Bossier Louisiana. Now. If if Shreveport's the nice southern quiet town, Bozier is nothing but drinking, driving, and so, I mean it was <laughs> it was pretty bad. And basically, I'm waiting on cars, and we served hard liquor to cars. Oh wow! Okay, so we served chicken, burgers, and hard liquor, and it was the first time I'd ever had a job where I would get the order, and I had black slacks, white shirt, tennis shoes, and I would go to the cars, and I would take the orders, I would go up, and I would give the order to the young lady, I'd go back to the car, I would serve it, and they would give me the money. I kept all my money, and at the end of the night, they presented me with a bill of everything I'd mm-hmm. served, and yeah. then what I, well, the balance was, that was my tips, okay, so, my tips ranged from le- leaving work about ten dollars to one night. I had I had made four cents. <laughs> I'd made four cents. Oh wow! But I still remember it. One of the first things. Um, so, one night we're working, and the boss was kind of crazy, and the place was nuts. And they introduced this drop dead cute little girl, young woman behind the counter. She's probably maybe a couple years older than me, but just really, really pretty. Just strikingly pretty, and I go up to give her my order, and I'm I'm looking at it, and there's something desperately wrong. 
I'm going, what the hell's going on with her? And I witnessed my first grand mal seizure. Wow. Yeah, this young girl had a grand mal seizure right in front of me. It was like, and I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, and of course, uh, I learned that there was this thing called epilepsy, and she had this grand mal seizure, so we didn't see her anymore. Um, that was a little bit striking. And then, um, I'm about into this about three weeks, and I remember there was a big fight, and somebody pulled a gun, and I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I, I don't think I really want to work here anymore. You never follow through on anything. You're so <laughs> lazy. I said, Mom, I think somebody just got shot in the barky lot. I'll be right there. <laughs> so... I got home, and about 20 minutes later, I had a job at McDonald's, making 88 cents an hour. Big step okay, up. Okay, now, now there's where I learned manual dexterity, because I learned how to make milkshakes. Back then, they weren't called milkshakes. They were called shakes, because there was no dairy product in them. No. Oh. It was coconut. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. This, this is way back. And so my job would be, on, on shake day... Shakes were 22 cents. Mm -hmm. And we had the machine, so I would fill it with this white glop, which was for, you know semi-frozen. And I would put either uh, a vanilla shot, a shot of vanilla, a shot of strawberry, a shot of chocolate in there. And I would... So anyway, at the end of the day, on my white shirt, I had a straight line right here where when I would take the... Sh I had to learn to take the shake off just right so that the last spin didn't get me. <laughs> And we, we did that for about two weeks, and then I got the greatest job I ever had. My next-door neighbor and I, we, were, we played a lot of ball together. He says, I've heard about this job. It was 10 hours a day, seven days a week, making two fifty an hour, three seventy-five after after 40. And we worked runway construction at the bomber base. Oh, wow. So I'm working with... I'm. The college kid. Hey, college kid. You know, but I'm not in college yet. And we did have one college kid who was from Notre Dame who pissed everybody. He was a friend of mine, Tim Cormody, but he he did not get along with the guys missing teeth and all that kind of stuff. I loved him. They were great. And I learned to, the first thing I did for the first couple of weeks was I was a tar baby. So I walked behind a truck, steam rising off this thing, and I had a tar gun that had a leak, so by, when I would get home at night, the whole side of my body was covered with tar, and I would walk along behind, and they were taking the tar out from between the concrete slabs on the runway, and I would spray the tar, and then we would fill it with asphalt. So I got to do, I learned all about tar, and then I became, then the other thing I learned was, you always learned right away what the shitty jobs were. Tar was bad. The next job was asphalt. You, I don't know if you can see it, but I have lots of spots. Yeah, I see them. Oh, you see them? Mm. So anyway, I climb up into this. The truck would come from the asphalt plant. Now, the, And I had boots on, but the asphalt was something like about 300 degrees. Mm -hmm. You're up there shoveling asphalt off the truck into a, a bin to the side. And, of course, I've got... I've got um, gloves on up to about here and of course my buddy next to me dumps a whole shovel full of asphalt into my glove oh wow so i wound up that thing came off and i brushed it off but i wound up with all these little burns all over but i survived but the best part in addition to learning to do tar learning to do asphalt 
I got to learn how to drive a truck. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I'd ever driven an automatic tra- uh, a stick mm-hmm. because my I'd learned to drive a, a, with, a, in an automatic. And then what else? And I learned how to drive a tractor. And the one, the only thing that they told us there was you had to be really careful because if there was ever a bomber alert, the bombers were going to take off no matter what we were doing. And you were supposed to watch the lights on the side, the, the numbers, every thousand feet or whatever. So I'm, I'm on the tractor one day, and I'm scraping something up. No, 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 no. And, there, and I can't hear anything. And, I, you know, and then I, I finally look behind me, and I see the guys yelling. And I look over, and I see the lights flash, and I go, oh. Okay. So I look down, and just then I see this thing the size of a, of a B-50, you know, a train, turning around and pointing its nose at me. It's a B-50, it's a line of B-52s. So I'm driving my tractor, trying to get off the runway. <laughs> I get off the runway, and this thing goes by. Boom. And when it does, it leaves a huge vacuum behind it. I got, you know, I kind of got sucked off the tractor, but... It was kind of fun. <laughs> and then, uh, but the other was, uh, we, were, we were working on the runway. There were two things that, one, one, we were working on the runway one day, and they said, okay, everybody, stay where you are. And from this, the mystery base over here, Bozier Base, they were bringing the nukes oh. over. And so here comes this bunch of, bunch of uh, MPs, and here comes these trailers, and sitting you could count the nuclear weapons that were sitting there it's like yeah this is really cool because <laughs> they would there were there were bombers always on alert so they would swap out the weapons and, and take them back that was kind of interesting i ha- hadn't been that close to a nuke ever and then the other was i saw my first f4c the phantom mm-hmm. it was it was a it was a fighter that was used in vietnam and this thing came straight down off the deck. He was about 100 feet in the air, stood it on its tail, and when it was afterburner, he was just showing off, mm. uh, which was cool. So I had that job. I made so much money that summer that it got me through um, the first two years of college. Wow. Yeah. I mean, in the college, you know, I was paying $300 a semester room and board. Um, there was, the tuition was like 20 bucks or something. And the books. Um, so anyway, uh, I have all this money I put in the bank. Uh, my mom and dad drive me to uh, Northeast Louisiana State College. They drop me off. Um, I met uh, my roommate. We were living in a dorm. I met a roommate who was very quiet, soft-spoken. I suspect he was probably um, on the autistic spectrum. Mm-hmm. And you know, we didn't. He, he just was so quiet. But college was going along, and then also one day he walks into me and he hands me his uh, ROTC brass because he's going to go home. And I said, yeah, but you live in Nacogdoches, Louisiana, which is south of Shreveport. He says, yeah, I'm going to walk. And I'm going like, uh, and he goes out the door. And I'm like, "Uh, now what do you do? You have this kid who doesn't talk, who's leaving, and he's going to walk home, but it's 130 miles home. And... I went sprinting down the stairs, only to find, you know, and talk to the people who then alerted the police. Uh, turned out this kid had been institutionalized. That's what they did with autistic kids back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, had, he was my roommate, which is a little bit interesting. And uh, I felt, but they did find him, which was good. Um, what else happened to me when I was in? Uh, 
and I was in college about six months. And my dad called me up and said, uh, got to make a decision. I said, well, what's that? He said, you got to decide whether you're going to stay there or you're going to come with us. And I'm going to, okay, where are we going? And he said, we're going to Taipei, Taiwan. Oh, wow. That's a big move. <laughs> so I said, and I had made, I had, I had, you know, the first semester in college, you know, it was like a whole new world by myself, you know, uh, learning all this different stuff. And, um, I, man, I didn't study at all. And I finally, toward, toward the end, I said, I had better study a little bit. And I made a 3.0 on the button, on the button. I made a 3.0. I said, man, if I'm going to go to medical school, I've got to do better. So I studied, started studying it. And, and my dad calls me and tells me this. And I'm going like, what am I going to do? And at that time, uh, one of the professors in chemistry or it was bio said, well, you know, every once in a while we'll have students go to LSU uh, who don't finish here. They, they go after their third year. And I said, oh, I don't know. So anyway, I stayed. I didn't stay. It was fantastic. I got back to Louisiana, to Shreveport. We drove to Chicago to see the grandparents. We drove across the north of the United States. The interstates hadn't even been built yet. Oh, wow. Okay. We drove through Wisconsin, Minnesota. But when you got into the Dakotas, Wyoming, Idaho, the uh, interstates were, were kind of like crushed rock. <laughs> we, had this, we drove all the way across. We got to Seattle, Tacoma. Um, there was a bomb threat. The the uh, the mechanics were striking, so they sent in a bomb threat on the plane that we were on. So they took us off. Um, but in the end, we wind up getting on a plane and flying to Taiwan. Uh, the worst part about it was this is back in the day when jets flew about 300 knots, as opposed to today about 500, 600. So flying from Seattle to uh, Yokosuka, Japan, took like 18 hours. The seats were, there were six across, you know, three and three. There was no such thing as a Walkman. There were no movies. Food was served in a white box. Um, there, was, there were two bathrooms for like 283 people. And it just took forever. We landed in this base called Yokosuka. Uh, they put us, uh, we, we, um, we had some flat tires on landing. So they put us out on the runway while they were changing the tires on the airplane. Japanese mosquitoes are the size of B-52s. They were, they were nailing us. And finally we get off and we land in Taiwan. And what I remember about Taiwan was they picked us up, they put us in this hotel, and I thought, oh, good, I get to go to bed now. Only I didn't realize the sun was coming up, not going down. Mm -hmm. But we, uh, man, our experience in Taiwan, we lived in a little hotel for a while. We wound up moving out to a really nice little home, but it was really fascinating because it was just like out of the movies. I mean, everything, the rice patties and everything else, and we, we, we lived in this home. I was only there maybe eight weeks. Met uh, David and Juno Knight. Uh, there were um, Samoans from Hawaii. David was six foot 11. Juno was six foot eight. Uh, and we had the best amateur basketball team on the <laughs> island because we got into all kind of tournaments. And uh, I was the slow white guy. Mm -hmm. you know, I was the Howley, as I learned. I was a Howley. <laughs> and I used to go over to his, their parents' house, and I would eat poi and all that stuff. And I kept saying, why are we eating this stuff that tastes like library paste? 
And of course, the answer would be, why would you know what library paste tastes like? <laughs> but I met those guys, and because it was really great, because there would be college kids coming from all over to Taiwan to visit the parents, and then we would get home. The adventure getting home was, we used to, we used to try to find a ride uh, from Taipei. So they would cut orders, we would go to the military base, and we would fly... Um, World Airways, which was a contract airline flying people to Vietnam, and we would wind up flying back to the United States. I made it back to Louisiana, uh, and I made it back to Chicago, to, and my grandmother, our cat, they wouldn't take our cat in Taiwan, my grandmother and a couple of uncles were living together, and they were and ancient. I landed in O'Hare, I had about 50 bucks in my pocket. The cab ride was 25 bucks to their home. I, I was knocking on the door. No one was there. I walk around the back of the house, knock on the door, and there is my grandmother, who's quite elderly, Uncle Dave, who he's the first person I think I ever saw who was probably dying of pancreatic cancer, but I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And I sit down, and I'm tired and I because I'd flown a red eye, and I'm sitting there, and they have to tell me that my cat had died. And I'm like, I'm devastated because the Maverick had been my cat forever. So I'm sitting there, and I go and I go to bed. Eula May, the maid, comes running in and says, you got to come check Uncle Dave. Uncle Dave is dead. He, he just dies. Wow. So I have to pick Uncle Dave up. I put him in the bed. I cover him up. I now call, uh, I call Aunt Alice, one of the my grandmother's sisters who's very cognizant she comes, the priests are there the whole thing, the police and everything else I'm exhausted, but now I have to write a letter to my mom, so I go to sit in the desk, I'm writing a letter uh, you know, really sad day Uncle Dave died, blah 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 blah, blah. the funeral's going to be, and oh by the way our cat is dead, blah 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 and I hear a knock 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 on the door and I go to the door and there is my Aunt Noreen who is uh Demented. Mm. She's, she's been living in a place. She was a occupational therapist, beautiful lady, smart as hell, but uh, much like many Irish people, enjoyed uh, two carbon fragments way too much. And so I knock on the. I open it up and say, Anne Marie, what are you doing here? Who are you? I said, I'm, I'm Jim Goodrow. And she goes, No, you're not, because Jim Goodrow is my father. Mm. That's mm. who she remembers. So anyway, Aunt Noreen has escaped from from the asylum. Oh, so no. so I have to pick her up, and I have to get in the back of the car with her, and I take her back. So I write this letter to my parents, and she just, I mean, I'm howling the whole, I'm crying, and I'm howling. And um, finally, I make it down to South Louisiana. One of the nice things about being in the Air Force was, in addition to your family, the Air Force was your family. So there were people at every base that you knew and whatever. So uh, Bud and Julie, Judy, Judy Grimm, uh, they lived at Shreveport. They would take me, and I wound up back at school. Um, then I had not, well, let me tell you, when your parents are 8,000 miles away, and there's no such, a phone call was $100 for three minutes, you know, and the closest relative was Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, I had a very quiet life. <laughs> I had a very quiet life. I kept it really quiet. Um, 
And I used to go up to Chicago to visit with my uncle. Thank God for Uncle Joe, man, because that was the only place I could go. And, uh, you know, that he was, I tell you what, man, everybody should have an Uncle Joe. He was, he was a stalwart. So then I finished my second year in college, and I take off because now I have to go back to Taiwan for the summer. So I wind up going to Chicago, flying out to the coast to San Francisco. Uh, I wandered the streets of San Francisco for a whole day because I wasn't going to get a hotel room. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got to see cable cars, and I got to see Fisherman's Wharf and all that stuff. And then I got on a bus and went up to Travis Air Force Base, which is near Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of nowhere, and there are hundreds of us Air Force, Army, and Navy brats who were all trying to get home to Japan, wherever. So uh, we, they put us up at a, in a BOQ, Bachelor's Officer's Quarters. And we would all go over to the Officer's Club, and we were swimming and having a good time. Going to the movies was, was like a, a dime. And the movie that I remember seeing was A Fistful of Dollars <laughs> in Clint Eastwood. And we would sit by the, and I mean, you know, all, all kinds of people. You'd sit by the pool, and this guy would show up and he'd say, Okay, Goodrow, Kim, Smith, you're on. So we'd sprint back to the place, grab our bags, rush us out to the airport. And because we were flying Brat, we were Air Force Brats, they put us in a special category called DIV, Distinguished Visitors. So, whereas all the normal people were in the in the uh, in the um, hangar bays with no air conditioning, <laughs> we're over here and where they where the generals would sit, and they put us on the airplane first. So we, of course, the three college kids that I was traveling with, we got the front seats in the plane, which meant we got to flirt with the stewardesses, <laughs> and we had lots of leg room, and uh, we flew to Japan, and we wound up going to the officers club, getting lunch. Then the first plane wound up, I wound up in, made it home to Taiwan. And my parents had moved. That summer in Taiwan, all I did was play tennis. And, and the best part was, uh, with the tennis court was right across the street from our home. And there was a Chinese national, and man, let me tell you, trying to, you know, you speak English, you speak Spanish, it has no connection with mm -hmm. Asian languages at all. But because of the love of tennis, and this guy who had played for the Davis Cup team from Taiwan, we got to, oh, we had some adventures with him. He took us down to the National Tennis Center in Taiwan, and it was the first time we played down there, and we're having a great time, and he takes us out, and he's going to buy us something to drink. This oh, great. And, we're, you know, the vendor's outside, out comes the glass, and I... I Take the first gulp. It's boiling hot water. <laughs> it, it's uh, I think the term is baikashui, and the funny thing was the first thing was the shock of the hot water, and the second thing that was really amazing was how refreshing it was. You know, I mean, Chinese culture has only been around about ten thousand years. Mm -hmm. That you you drink hot water, you drink hot tea, and it's much more refreshing than drinking cold soda. Mm -hmm. So that summer I played a lot of tennis, and. Our job was, um, because they wanted us to stay away from the, act, the, during the Vietnam War, you'd be in combat, doing whatever, 
and at about six months they would send you someplace up to Thai, up to Hong Kong or to Taipei for R and R, which meant they were going up there to get laid, to drink and get laid. Okay? <laughs> and um, so they really tried to keep us apart because we're the college kids who missed, didn't get drafted, and these these young men. Uh, so uh, we basically had this job at this air base, and my job was to climb down in the binjos. Binjos are outdoor sewers, mm-hmm. six foot walls slanted, the bottom of which would be was three or four inches of stuff that you wouldn't want to know. And we had fire hoses. Now you don't give a bunch of high school, college kids fire hoses. We did our job. We cleaned this. We cleaned shit out. But as soon as we cleaned it out, we had fire hose wars, <laughs> which, was, which was a blast. Which was a blast, and we we would get a little bit of trouble. And then they they assigned us another job. They walked us out. There's this huge uh, antenna uh, with guide wires and everything else. And he opens the gate, and there is grass that's about six feet high. And he gives us machetes. And axes, and somebody had a sprayer for something. And our job was we had to clear the field. Now, this field is probably the size of two football fields. Well, it's 113 degrees in the shade, mm-hmm. humid, and we're whacking our way through this stuff. There are spiders the size of dinner plates, <laughs> there are snakes, but we found, I mean, talk about an adventure. And we, did, we clear all that out. And then eventually we survived. And I came back to the United States, went to college again. I had applied, based on my sophomore grades, about halfway through my junior year, I applied to the ancestral medical schools, Northwestern and uh, University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And my grade point average was like 3.8 or 3.9 or something. And I'm, I got immediate rejections. You know, you had to handwrite all this stuff. There was no such thing as a computer back then. And uh, you're, you're too young, you know, whatever. So literally at the last minute, I called LSU on the phone, identified myself, and I said, look, you know, could you send me an application? I got the application about two days later. It's the only application I ever in my life filled out immediately. <laughs> okay. S- fired it off, sent it down to Louis- to LSU, with my $10 fee, you know, as opposed to the thousands of dollars that you guys. And I'm wandering around the campus, you know, picking my nose one day. And uh, somebody says, hey, uh, Goodroy, your name's on a list. You're the first guy on the list to, to see the dean of admissions from LSU. I'm going, like, oh, okay, I don't know. So sure enough, there I was on a list. So at 8 o'clock in the morning, I show up in the, uh, in the student union. And I and I have breakfast with Bob Simmons from LSU. My your interview. Tell us about a time when you were part of a team. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the BEI. We sat down. We talked for probably forty five minutes to an hour um, about anything and everything. And in the end, he says to me, "Oh, uh, well, it's really good to meet you. Look forward to having you at LSU next year." And I said, uh, "Am I going to LSU next year?" He said. Of course. <laughs> and I, I didn't have to wait for a letter, nothing. Um, quite different than what you guys go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, the adventure then was getting back to Taiwan, 
that summer we did uh, I had a couple of interesting events. We did we we drove to uh, Walian. On Taiwan, there is an area where there's a thing called the East-West Highway, which is a controlled access highway, and I'll tell and you, you'll understand right away. So anyway, my dad, my mom, and this other couple decide we're going to go on this trip to the Taroko Gorge. So off we go. The problem is we don't know that we are on the highway at the wrong time. So we're driving along on this narrow little road and we come around the corner and there's a bus the size of a train coming at us. His eyes, the driver's eyes got pretty wide, my dad's eyes got pretty wide. So we found out that we were on the road at the wrong time. So my dad very carefully would drive along. Now you have to understand, right there is the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> about 400 feet straight down. Mm -hmm. There's no guardrails. Okay. My dad and I, we look out the window, we can't see the road. So we're driving along, and he finally, we get to this point, we pull off, and he sends me ahead, and there's a bridge that crosses the ravine. The bridge has two two-by-twelves on either side for you to put your vehicle on. I'm walking across this thing, looking down, thinking, yeah, I have to get over there and I have to explain to them that we screwed up. So finally they stop the traffic, we get across, we stop, and we um, we wait. And the guy says, okay, it's time to go. We get in the car, we take off, we go around the curb, there's a bus. They missed the county, you know. So anyway, we make it all the way down to Walian. Now the interesting thing about Walian was that was where the Chinese, the Taiwanese had a marble um, uh, quarry, and I bought 64 pieces, I'll have to show it to you, I, I bought 64 pieces of green and white marble, which I then had made into a chess table, because at oh, one wow. time I used to play a lot of chess, not anymore, uh, had it made, but that night we were, were sitting in this town called Walian, now my mom and the other two people in the vehicle had been on that side, they were having a great time, my dad and I, I mean, I'm, I'm holding up. Uh, I can barely hold my hands because it's so tense. My dad and I look at each other. We go out. We we bought a bottle of whiskey and we killed it. <laughs> we killed it. I mean that night. The next day we we now go from Walian across the top of Taiwan, the island, and we are going to go to through what's called the Taroko Gorge. Now, if you wanted to take Mackenzie someplace, it's incredible. There's a place called the Inn at the Sun Moon Lake. I mean, talk about one of the most beautiful settings you've ever seen. But to get there back then, this time, the drop-off is on their side of the car. And we were crossing mountains where the only reason you knew it was the highway was because you could see where it had been smoothed off a little bit. So we, we made it across the island. <laughs> that was my adventure that year. And then, and then, because I was going to medical school, my mom and dad arranged for us to fly to Tokyo. Um, there was an airline that flew from Tonsonud Air Force Base in Vietnam to Clark Air Force Base in uh, the Philippines to Taiwan and then to uh, Yokosuka, Japan. So my dad makes arrangements, and we wind up going to Tokyo, the, the, uh, the idea being see Tokyo and then buy, buy microscopes for medical school. <laughs> so basically, we get there, we stayed at the Sanyo Hotel. Now, this is way before your time. The Sanyo Hotel, every night, Walter Cronkite would be interviewing somebody at the Sanyo Hotel, talking about how the Vietnam War was going down, down, down the tubes. We stay at the Sanyo Hotel 
I'm having breakfast in a room. Now, my dad is lieutenant colonel. He is the lowest ranking officer in the room. They're generals. And at, oh, wow. and at the table next to me is Westmoreland. He was a four-star. He was running the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. He's sitting right there. So I'm a, you know, he's, I'm Air Force brat. This guy's one of my heroes. So anyway, that was kind of interesting. Then we go to the Japanese, we go to the Nikon microscope factory store. <laughs> and I get two microscopes, boxes, and I'm carrying them all over. We wind up taking the bullet train. Have you ever, have you been to Japan yet? Well, the bullet train uh, back then was 100 miles an hour. Now it's almost 300 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. But we go to Kyoto, and uh, it's a three-hour. And, I mean, let me tell you something. In J- the, the, the people, you're pressed in and just everywhere. We get on the train. At 3 o'clock, the doors close. Boom! And the train takes off. Boom! And we're in Kyoto in six, at 6 o'clock, which is th- uh, 300 miles. And we stayed at a little, beautiful little inn. I get up in the morning to go hit do my uh, biology stuff. And I walk into the bathroom, and I'm looking around. All white porcelain with two areas to put your feet, and the, there's a hole. Mm-hmm. And i like, yeah, this, it works, but it's a, little di- <laughs> it's a little different. I think there were some handholds, too, if I remember. Uh, and then we did a tour of all the temple, uh, not all the temples, but the temples in Kyoto. If you ever get a chance, that would be something else to do. The, the Tokyo, uh, Kyoto was one of the cities that we did not bomb because uh, everybody knew that it was the religious center of the Japanese culture. So somehow we managed to be smart enough not to, to, to bomb it. We got back, and then we got back to Tokyo home. Then we packed up our home and moved back to the United States. We moved, we were down in Illinois. I take a train down to New Orleans, get into the LSU Medical School dorm. Mike Kessler, who I bought this other microscope for, another Air Force kid, I give him his. And we, should, we, go, we go to LSU and they go, oh, a Nikon. Oh, a Nikon microscope. You should have bought a Bosch and Loam or an American Optical. And they said, we'll have to examine your microscopes. If you may not remember this, but back in the day, all microscopes had curved lenses. So because of the curved lenses, you had to constantly focus up and down and move the slides around Mm -hmm. to see the whole field. He and I had the first flat flat plane focal lenses they'd ever seen. They, they check our microscopes, and they offer us money for them. <laughs> Whenever we would do the pathology exams, there were people lined up behind me to use my microscope. <laughs> I still My microscope is still in my closet upstairs. My brother used it in dental school. Oh, wow. 150 bucks. It was $1,000. Um, the scopes back then were $1,000. So anyway, um, I did forget one story. I'm boring you with all these stories. But... I'm going to rewind back to uh, Spain for a second. I wake, it's around Christmas. We're all sick. About every five or six months, you would get the madrillenos, which is, you would, you, were, you're, you, you would sit on the toilet, and it was a very uncomfortable experience as you were either throwing up or, <laughs> you know, pooping like crazy. So I had the madrillenos, and I mean, really ill. And it's Christmas of my junior year. I get I get up, I drag myself out of bed, and my Christmas present, I open it up, 
and it's a book of Russian short stories. And I'm like, WTF? You know, what's going on here? There's a letter, and I open the letter up. It says, Jamie, we know that you're, you know, blah, 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 blah. So what we're going to do is we're going to send you to the Soviet Union for a month. That will be your graduation present, but a year early. So, sure enough, my mom and I get on an airplane. We fly from Madrid to Frankfurt. We wander around the Frankfurt airport because our guide doesn't show up. We finally find the train that takes us to... And we, we flew to Vienna. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of days in Vienna. We got to see the Lippensanner Stallions. You know, uh, it's a famous... Well, look it up sometime. It's... Um, they're these incredible dancing horses. They call them the Spanish, uh, I'm blocking the name, but it, but it was an incredible show, and Vienna is an incredible city. We then get on a train, and we take the train from Vienna to Budapest. Now, talk about a train that came out of um, Hogwarts, you know, <laughs> Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. I mean, the door, the sliding doors, these old horse-side seats, the most uncomfortable things you've ever been in your life. And we cross over through the Iron Curtain. And I mean, talk about the Iron Curtain. I'm like, you know, I'm an Air Force brand. I'm staring out the window. I mean, fences, barbed wire, machine guns, tanks, towers. It, it was, it was, it was, you know, the Iron Curtain was very real. We cross over, we get into Budapest. We spent a couple of days there. In 1960, there had been a, um, a revolution. They tried to do what they did more recently. It failed. The building, there were buildings on the main drag that still had bullet holes in the walls, uh, which, which to me was pretty interesting. Uh, but that was a, and I'm, I've got to go back because I hear now Buddha and Pest are absolutely gorgeous. So we spent a couple days there, and then we got on a plane and flew to Kiev. Now, all international airports were also military bases. So when we landed, Mm -hmm. I'm going like MiG-17, MiG-17, MiG-18, MiG-15, (laughs) MiG-21. That's a backfire bomber. That's a big bear bomber. My mom mom is, you know, shut up. (laughs) Shut up. You know, they're going to take you. So anyway, we arrive at night. They take us to this gray shack. Now, everybody in Russia, every soldier we saw was 6'5 or 6'6. Really intimidating. And we're in this cold building, and they're going through everything in our luggage. I mean, everything. And there's a woman standing next to me, and the guy looks at her and says, is that everything you have to declare? And she says, yes. And he reaches into the bottom of her thing, and he pulls out this watch that she had forgotten to declare. She gets picked up bodily, her bags get picked up, and she disappears. We're all like, holy cow. So anyway, off, you know, we're like, they take us in and they put us at the Hotel Kiev. And I had chicken a la Kievsky in the Hotel Kiev. I don't know if you've ever had chicken a la Kiev. It's a, it's a breaded chicken breast that they hollow out and they put in spices and butter in the center. Ooh. Oh, yes, chicken a la Kiev. So I have that in Kiev. So we do a tour of Kiev, which was great. Then we wind up flying to Leningrad, which mm-hmm. now is St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. And we got to go to the Hermitage. And I saw the Potemkin, the, the 
cruiser that's in the river that fired the shot that started the Russian Revolution, on it, mm. so, uh, which was pretty fascinating. And they took us all over Leningrad, and I mean, it was Easter. It was cold. It was cold, and it was cold. One of the most interesting one one of the things I thought was good for me was being an altar boy. We had two Roman Catholic priests with us on the trip, so everywhere we went, we were saying mass, but. I didn't know that we were being watched the whole time as we were saying Mass. But we wound up in Moscow. I saw Swan Lake at the Bolshoi Ballet. Went all over Moscow. It, what a fascinating city. If you ever get there, the subway system makes... It is like, The subways look like cathedrals. The artwork and the way they're constructed, how clean they are. Um, it was something else. We wound up doing a tour of the Kremlin. Now, we... We pull into Red Square, get out of the bus, it's cold as hell. The in-tourist guy, you're, you're accompanied by a guide from, from the Soviet, mm-hmm. and she takes us over. There's a line, it disappears into the distance. Here's Lenin's tomb, and she walks up to one of these six-foot-five guys and says something. He just puts his arm out. This line stops, the line keeps moving. And they insert us in here. Now, can you see New York City waiting in some line at the theater? And a policeman goes, okay, you guys stop right here. Not a, not a word, not a peep out of mm-hmm. these people. And we went through Lenin's tomb. And uh, if you ever get a chance, talk about it. You walk in, everything is black and red. All the guards are, are I mean, you know, at that time I'm, I'm, I had just reached about six feet tall, and I'm like looking up at all these guys. And you literally walk around, you walk around, you walk up over the top, and you walk behind him. And he, there he is, preserved. And I swear they had a light bulb inside his head. I mean, it was it was really impressive. And then you walk out. Uh, pretty impressive uh, the way they did it. Across the way is their famous. Um, department store, GUM, G-U-M. So we go in there, we buy a balalaika, we do the little things. We come out, and there is the famous St. Mark's, you know, the the church that you see with Mm -hmm. the spires. And we're all, we're we're having a great time. It's time to get on the bus. This young teenager comes up to one of the guys on the trip and says, you know, I'll I'll swap you my my hat for your cowboy hat. Yeah, sure. So we get on the bus. I'm sitting by the window. These two guys get out of a car and beat the shit out of the guy who got the cowboy hat. I'm, I'm sitting there watching them as they're kicking the cowboy hat down the road and beating the shit out of this guy. I'm going like, yeah, I'm going to sit on my hands <laughs> this trip. But we did that, and then we drove all the way from Moscow to Minsk, Smolensk, and to um, Warsaw. Now, you think you've seen, have you seen much snow? A little bit. Let me tell you, I know why the Soviets and why Napoleon lost. We drove all the way, and I swear, we're in a huge bus, and the snow is above us the whole way. (laughs) The whole way. Uh, And so we wound up in Poland, which was Warsaw, which is fascinating, because they actually showed us the ghetto. They showed us the memorial to Mm -hmm. all that. And then I had my first beer ever in... Pilsen, uh, Pilsner, uh, which was in Czechoslovakia, and we made it home. I tell you, we were we, we crossed from the Soviet-controlled areas into Germany to, and stopped in Nuremberg. 
we broke into applause as we crossed back out uh, uh, because for we were we were followed everywhere. Every penny that we had was counted for. When I went to the school, I spent a couple of days at a school. They wanted to buy my jeans. They wanted to buy my shirts. They wanted, and you had to have everything documented because when you left the country, they they balanced it all out. They were really it was really kind of interesting time. Anyway, medical back to medical school. Sorry, I took. <laughs> it's a good turn. But we got to medical school, and medical school was, man, talk about it. my My first roommate was a guy named John Elfelberry. John studied more than any human I've ever seen in my lifetime. I was coasting on college, and, man, young guy in, in New Orleans, lots of stuff to do, lots of trouble to get into. <laughs> and so we go over to the med school. We see our bodies, you know, which was really, you know, daunting. And um, first couple tests I did fine. Then I got a 71. Then I said I better start studying. But, yeah, med school was really, um, first two years of med school, they blur by, don't they? It was just a lot of studying, mm-hmm. a lot of work. And then this, and I had, my med school tuition was $600 the first year and $600 the second year. Now, you can't even imagine that. No. And what I had done during the summers when my when we were back in the United States, I spent three months at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's in Chicago starting IVs and drawing blood. Uh, so when I got to med school, I knew how to do that. And so I went over to the charity hospital, and I said, I can draw blood and start IVs. And they said, you're hired. So every morning I would show up at charity hospital, for a year, and I would go to the various units and draw blood and get IVs in, and so I made enough money to go to medical school doing that. And then I did this in the sophomore year when I was in med school. I worked in the recovery room, and then I became a scrub tech. Mm-hmm. Now my training in scrub to be a scrub tech was wash your hands, put your gown and glove. I learned how to close gown and glove, and I learned how to lay out a tray. And that was all the training I got. <laughs> and it was, it was strictly OJT. And I remember the first case I ever did was a, a, a appendicitis. There was a woman and this, this resident who I knew, he was a fourth-year or fifth-year resident, really good guy. We'd played ball against him or something. And I remember she makes the incision, and I'm watching her, and I'm going, like, what's going on with this little young lady? And I, I can see her kind of heaving. And then I realized she was going to throw up. So I... I grabbed my tray, moved it, shoved her out of the way. She throws up in her mask. It's, it's like, oh, God. And, you know, we're all like, okay, get her cleaned up. And then the kid looks at me. The guy looks at me. He says, uh, you can help me? I said, yeah, sure. So <laughs> so I'm, I'm scrubbing. And back then, we didn't have swedged-on needles. Today, when you ask for any, uh, give me a 4-0 silk or pro, it's all, it's already in the needle. Mm. Back then, you would load a needle, and then you would take the suture material, load it, spin it around, load it again, and then hand it to the surgeon. And um, I learned to do that really fast because uh, the residents back then had no emotional emotional intelligence training. I got mm-hmm. yelled at a lot. But that got me through the first two years. And then I realized uh, when you start your fourth, your third year, you got to be there. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't work. You know, I was working averaging you know six hours a day working in addition to school so that's when i i took out a two thousand dollar loan that got me through my third year 
$2,000, right? That's about nice. a month and a half. Yeah, yeah. be nice. <laughs> and the best part was, we had I lived in the dorm for a couple of years, and then we moved in. My partner and I had a, how are we doing? We're good, we're good. Keep going, keep going. Okay. I'm just checking battery and no, stuff. No. My, um, so when we started my third year, my roommate and I, Glenn Wells, great guy from Alexander, uh, Louisiana, we got an apartment for $44 a month. Wow. <laughs> we lived at 1255 Tulane Avenue, right on the Tulane. LSU was down the block about eight blocks, so, and gasoline was 17 cents a gallon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had that $2,000, and then back then, as a as a sophomore, as a so, as a junior, Louisiana had such low standards. I could work at a hospital at night as a sub I. Oh wow! And my job in the and in this one little hospital, you make fifty bucks a night cash. Pretty good. Let me tell you, when you get fifty bucks a night cash, that was big money back then. And and what you did was you played intern. You ran around the hospital. You. Started, uh, you know, drew blood, started IVs, put down NG tubes, uh, put in Foley catheters, and you would assess a patient and then call the attending and say this is what was going on. So it was really good, but I, I knew I couldn't keep that up. So, uh, and my dad was an Air Force officer, and the Vietnam War was incredibly hot and heavy. The class before me had, you know, 85% of them had gone on to active duty, and you know, the military was was just part of my life. So I wound up um, joining the Navy at the start of my junior year, but became a commissioned officer at the start of my senior year. Mm-hmm. And I was making, after taxes, 600 bucks a month. Not I bad. was flush. That's not I bad. was cash, <laughs> cash flush. And, um, and it was that summer between my junior and senior years that the, the biggest, the most important thing that ever happened in my life happened. And that was, I'm walking down the hall of charity. I, man, you know, it was a great environment. It was a fun town, place to go, peace. And, and there were just, it was, there were lots of women and we were all having a great time. It was mm-hmm. the 60s. It was the 60s and the 70s. You know, HIV had not reared its ugly head, and mm-hmm. I was learning. I, you know, I had a real good education in that part of life. And um, I'm walking down the hall, and this little young lady steps out from the uh, from a from C400C, and I saw her, and I absolutely, and I rarely panic in my <laughs> life, but I literally, I, this voice said to me. You have got to talk to her now. And I went, I'm like looking around going like, who's talking to me? Because I don't ever do that. And I went over to this young lady, Stan Hall, and I introduced myself. So my name is Jim Goodrow. I'm a medical student at LSU, and I'm wondering if you'd like to go out to dinner. And she looks at me. She's got a tray of medicines. She's got her gla- little, little wing glasses. She said, follow me. She takes me into the, uh, let me tell you, the nurses at Charity Hospital, they work there. They work hard. Mm-hmm. She takes me into the medication room. She's looking at me. She's kind of going, she takes her glass off, looks at me and says, I'll give you a break. <laughs> That's her words. So we, we're going to meet 
she lives in the same area that I do, the next apartment complex over. So I wind up, I'm thinking, man, hot Cajun chick, this is it, man. It's going to be a big night. I go over, knock on the door, door opens. Her grandmother, her mother, her sister, and two nieces have shown up. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. Our first date, Eugene, mm -hmm. we went to Mass. <laughs> We went to Mass. Oh, we went to Sunday you. night Mass. Oh, wow. Now, when my parents were in Taiwan, the only time I would go to Mass is right before I had to fly across the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and I'd go to confession, do all the things that Catholics do. So anyway, I'm in Mass with her, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm just kind of zoning out. And I finally realized what's going on. I said, hey, how long have they been saying this in English? I hadn't gone to Mass since they... <laughs> 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 so anyway... Then we go out and um, we start dating and, you know, nothing serious. We're having a good time. She's a fun lady. She's a Cajun from home of Louisiana. Great lady. And um, we're dating. But, you know, are we dating? Are we not dating? And so when she had been in Europe, I had run into Cindy Kane. Cindy, I learned a lot from Cindy. So, an exam is over, and I go over to Joe's. Joe's the famous bar that every medical student has right across the street from Charity Hospital in LSU. Mm -hmm. And I run into Cindy Kane. Now, I'm supposed to meet with Susie, but I run into to Cindy. Mm -hmm. So, the next morning, I realize I've really screwed up because my dad has flown into town to meet Susie. Oh, yeah, you messed up. So I really up screwed up. So I, I sprint over to the hospital, and I am mea culpa, mea culpa. You know, are you familiar with Latin at all? A little bit. Yeah, mea culpa, mea culpa, maxima. I mean, she is just. And I said, look, you got to go out with us, you know, about my dad. So anyway, we get in the car that night. She tells my dad the whole thing. He and she beat on me <laughs> the whole night. My dad has absolutely no sympathy. He is just every aspect of discipline, self-management, emotional intelligence. He and she are just, they've ganged up on me. And I'm like, you know, oh, my God. And I know I've screwed up. You know, I'm very penitent. But it's, and I, you know, it's, it's over. We're not. So anyway, the next day I drive my dad to the airport. And I have, for some reason, I have Susie's television in the back of my car. Because I'm driving up to Baton Rouge for my AI in surgery at the Huey P. Long Charity Hospital. Mm -hmm. Myself, my roommate, a couple of my buddies were going up there. So I drop my dad off at the airport, and I start driving on this highway. It's called Airline Highway, but I w it's a four-lane highway split by a big grassy area that has is like a, uh, a small, not canyon, but it's a depression. But it's pretty wide, maybe 20 yards. And it's nighttime, and it's dark, 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 and it is raining, cats and dogs. Mm -hmm. the, the rain is pouring down. And I'm kind of cruising along, not paying much attention, but, you know, I'm keeping it under control. And as we come around this bend, this Porsche goes right by me, on the right side, oh. and I'm not thinking anything of it, and I'm watching the Porsche, and all of a sudden I said, holy shit, there's something in the 
in the path of the Porsche. I see the headlights, there's something across the road. And I watch the Porsche slam into the side of this car that's across the road. And I went, what am I going to, you know, foot's off the gas, I can't go right, so I'm thinking I'm going to go left, I don't know anything there, but I'm watching the, the Porsche and this big black whatever cross the road, and I'm, I'm just staring the car, no brake, because, you know, if you hit your brakes, you're, you're going to spin out, and it's like a slideshow, click, 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 and I'm watching the wreck get closer and closer and closer, and I'm watching the right front of my car, you know, where my headlight is. And I had a 1969 Fastback Mustang, sweet car, <laughs> and known to go very quick, and I'm driving along, I'm driving, I'm driving, driving, and I watch the front of the car slide by the wreck, probably by three or four inches, and I took a breath, and a guy steps right out in front of the car, and I hit him. Oh. I mean, right, dead center, I hit, I, I hit him, bam! With that, I, the car slides sideways, down, water, I'm like, you know, well, that was fun. I open the door, there's two feet sticking right here. Oh, wow. I get out of the car, I grab the feet, I pull this guy, now I'm knee-deep in water, I pull this individual up on the bank, and I turn him on his side, you know, beating on his back, and there's a pulse, and I've got him turned, and he's breathing, but he's out, and I look, and this voice says, Goodrow, is that you? I can't find my wife, and I look up, and it's a friend of mine, Terry Segura, and I said, oh shit, that was Terry's Porsche. His wife had been in the car, and the way the Porsches are, when they hit, she had no seatbelt. She slid under, remember the gas tank's right here, so she slides underneath. So I'm sitting there with Terry. We, we, you know, I, I, I said, i got to stay with this guy because I don't know what's going on. And I look up, and there's cars. Beyond this car that was across the highway, there are all these other cars. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and I hear this, oh, my God, that's my roommate's car. My roommate, Glenn Wells, is in the line of traffic and he sees my car so he comes running up he sees Terry, he sees me and he's thinking, who the fuck's on the ground? Excuse the expression. <laughs> Who's on the ground? So anyway, it's this guy so anyway, now by this time the police are all showing up and it's a mess and there's cars everywhere and uh, it's a big deal and it turned out that the guy I hit was the guy who hit somebody from behind he had stopped, the other guy had stopped one of the cars was across the highway. The next person who came up put his car on the other side of his across the highway, too. And that's why there were no lights in this wreck. So anyway, the state trooper shows up. There's troopers everywhere. And we're sitting in his car. Here's the trooper. Guy one, guy two, guy three, me, and this other guy. He turns and he reams this guy out. Ticket. Goes to this guy over here. Ticket. This guy over here. Ticket. He turns to me and he goes, Don't worry, Jim. I've already called General Wade. He's going to get a hold of your dad. Don't worry about it. We'll take really good care of you. And I'm like, What just happened? <laughs> what, what, what just happened? 
This guy had worked for my father in the Air Force. Mm. He's now a state trooper. Oh, wow. He knew the name, you know. And it's like, because I'm sitting in the back of the car going, I have a Mustang with Texas plates. I don't know where the registration is. And I got a Louisiana license. I'm like, I'm dead. You know, <laughs> dead, dead, dead. So anyway, they clear us all out. And it's, it's like out of a movie. This guy comes and he's got about four teeth. And he says, 25 bucks to take your car out of the ditch. So I'm like, 25 bucks. They re... Was that my wife? I think so. Okay. He, they reach underneath. They pull my car up. Water's running out of the car. Nice to meet you, too. Nice to meet you, Susie. <laughs> and they pull the car out, and uh, the water's running out. And he says, 25 bucks to take you to Baton Rouge. So I'm, I'm in the car. I go, ah. Car starts. So anyway, I drive the car to Baton Rouge. They check us in, you because know, the, they, they really treated us well. Our meals, a place to stay the whole bit. So the next day, I'm in the operating room, and I get a call. Dr. Uh, Dr. Taylor wants to see you in the surgeon's lounge. I'm like, who the fuck's Dr. Taylor? So I go down, and I walk in. I say, I'm uh, Jim Goodrow. I'm, I'm looking for Dr. Taylor. Are you the young man who saved that man's life, who performed the life-saving maneuvers that kept him from dying on the scene? I go like, uh, I was the guy who hit him. <laughs> he said, no, no, son. You are the man who saved his life. And that's exactly what I told his parents. <laughs> and I'm like, my, my guardian angel's working overtime. So anyway, um, we wind up, you know, have a great experience at UEP Long, graduate from medical school. I decide, uh, I take my wife up to Chicago. She you know, needs, but you just skipped the whole thing about, like, how <laughs> she, you were in trouble, oh, got in the thing, oh, and oh, now I find oh, out that that's, no, Su- that's the Susie. No, no, yeah, sorry. Gotta <laughs> back up, gotta back up. Rewind the tape. So, anyway, I get to Baton Rouge to find out the next day that my mom has called Susie to find out if I'm okay because General Way to call my dad. Oh, okay. And, you know, there's this, everything else. And Susie's only concerned because I got her color TV in the back <laughs> of my car. So I get up there, and so I wind up seeing Susie, and thank God we get back together. Mm. Okay. So, and I take her up to, to Chicago to meet my mom. Um, my mom actually invites her. We get up there. She meets my mom. My mom falls in love with her. And um, I get back to Louisiana, and my mom and I are on the phone, and she says, I just want to let you know I sent the diamonds to the jeweler. I went, say what? When my, when my parents were out of the country, I wound up taking, doing a lot for my grandmother. She gave me her diamonds when mm-hmm. she went on to the next life. And sure enough, about three weeks later, a little black box shows up in my mailbox, <laughs> and here is the engagement ring and the, 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 the wedding band. So I throw it in my drawer, and I'm thinking, man, do I, you, know, you, know, I, you know, you're back and forth. You, do you get married? Do I go to Washington, D.C., where there's tons of women, and mm. you know, all this back and forth? Um, and I meet her parents, we, her, her dad. Hey, uh, son, when are you going to get a haircut? Because you know, back <laughs> then my hair is down on my shoulders. He was, they were the most fantastic family, just wonderfully. just used to go down and we'd go fishing and crabbing and all kinds of stuff. So I finally, I found out 
somewhere that it took six weeks to, to get a wedding. So six weeks to the minute, I'm going to ask her. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting on the back porch with Susie, and she's like, come on, come on, get in there, go talk to him, come on. I finally, I get up, I go in, Bubba's sitting at this end of the couch, I'm sitting here, Susie's sitting there, Rhea's sitting here, but Bubba, he's just, you just can't even imagine what Bubba looked like. He's about five foot five, massive, just, he'd been working, he'd done oil rigs and all that stuff. And I start with, the, well, Bubba, you know, we've known each other for about a year now. And uh, I'm kind of stuck. And Ray goes, hey, Bubba, Jim wants to know if he can marry Susie. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it goes. And, and, and he looks at me and he goes, uh, yeah, no, okay. But when are you going to get married? We said, you know, I graduated on June the 3rd. We're going to get married on the 5th. There's no way you're going to get married on the 5th, you know, blah, blah. So anyway, we run over to St. Uh, Gregory Barbarigo. The priest goes, there's, oh, my God, the date's open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, oh, the date's open. And we had to do, when you're Catholic, you have to do these pre-Cana conferences. We got to do those. So my parents come down. I figure it's perfect. Graduation, wedding, we're set. So we, we get married. The wedding um, it was kind of, you know, it was a Cajun wedding. I go to the, the, the reception. It was beer and shrimp. Her mom's last name is Chauvin. There's a little town south of Homa called Chauvin, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And her family were the Chauvin Shrimpers. Okay. So basically, the hall at Rosalie and Ray's has like eight ping pong table-sized tables with shrimp that are this big, a, ba- a, a, a pool of Cajun hot sauce... And, be, and that was, and I met every cousin from every bayou in South Louisiana. It was, I mean, it was, it was, a, it, and we're about, it's about nine o'clock at night, and they kicked us out. We had to go up to uh, uh, New Orleans. We stayed at the Royal Orleans Hotel. And if you would think that on a Monday night there'd be a restaurant open, there were no restaurants open. So anyway, we wind up. And then the next day, I have to go to. I have to report into the Navy. Susie's in the hall. Go reporting to the Navy took forever. I'm in there raising my hand. I Jimmy Goodrow promised to do my best, do my duty, God and my country, be square and obey the law of the pack. And she's sitting outside, crying because we just got married. She wants to go on the honeymoon. Captain comes in, gets us out of there. They cut us a check for five thousand (laughs) dollars. 1972, $5,000. Yeah, they didn't pay you enough when you're in the Navy, so here's a check for $5,000. I'm looking at the check going like, hey, man, let's go to, let's go to Hawaii or something. She goes, nah, we're going to put that in the bank. <laughs> so, 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 so we put it in the bank, you know, the way out of town. We drive to Biloxi, Mississippi, and we, we, have, our, we have our honeymoon. Second day of the honeymoon, there's a knock on the door. My best friend is at the door with my golf clubs. <laughs> I still hear about that one. And um, I come back, and we go back to Louisiana, and we go back to New Orleans. And how you guys take step one, step two, step two CS, we had that all in three days. Oh wow! There were no exams during med school. I mean, we took exams Dude. in med school, but we're sitting in an auditorium at Tulane with all the Tulane graduates, all the LSU graduates, and you know, tiny little chairs. And the first day was basic science. The second day was clinical science. And the third day 
was a collection of the worst 8mm movies you've ever seen. They'd run this strip for five minutes, and you'd see a reflex hammer. And then they'd stop it, and they'd say, was the reflex hyper, hypo, or nor... I mean, oh. So anyway, you, our whole lives were bent up, and it was called the Federal Licensure Exam. So we wind up leaving, get up to Chicago. Now we've got to drive to Bethesda. I had no idea how difficult it was going to be to get an apartment in D.C. because mm. I thought, ah, there's apartments everywhere. I can live. So anyway, we, we take off, we drive, and we're driving to um, Bethesda, and there's trucks over there on their side. It's raining. There's cars off the road. We're going, that, you know, we're driving along in her. In her, my Mustang is now at home. I'm driving a 1971 Chevy Nova, you know, with with what we called 470 air conditioning, four windows down, 70 miles an hour. <laughs> and we drive all the way. We make it all the way to Bethesda. We're checking in at a hotel. The guy goes, where'd you guys coming in from? We said, oh, Chicago. He said, did, did you guys miss the hurricane? <laughs> we, what hurricane? The one you drove through. If you ever go to Wilkes-Barre in Scranton, mm -hmm. in 1972, there was a hurricane called Hurricane Agnes that drowned those two cities. Oh, wow. Yeah, it came right through this area and just drowned the whole area. We drove through it. <laughs> there was no CNN. There was no the Weather Channel, no nothing. You know, as far as internship was concerned... The I'll pause you there. Yep. Pause you there. Because this has been a long, good, like, intro from, like, there till intern year. Right. We haven't started the actual interview yet. No, yeah. <laughs> it's Sorry. Good. No, it's fine. It's good stuff. This is really good stuff because it's keeping you going. Um, but I want to like pause, give us a chance to like go to the bathroom, take care of some stuff, um, and then uh, we can resume with the with the interview.